City, Quebec, Canada. Bonjour. Hello, Len. How are you doing? Very good. Glad to be speaking to you. We met in person, I think, about a year ago when I came yeah. to Quebec City and stayed there visiting with you, Jim Eugenio, and Oliver Stone. And that was a great week. And really, it uh, it helped. You know, the whole year of COVID and nothing and dismal. Yes. And then, you know, we got together and there's lectures and speeches and dinners and things. So it really started things on a good good note I, I had so much fun I enjoyed meeting you and your spouses uh, I remember Susan you and I when I you know we met Sydney who picked you up at the airport I think so eh? and anyway we ended up having a croissant right in the old port oh yeah that's right that's funny yeah, me and Susan, my wife, right? We said, no, the first thing we got to do when we get to Quebec, we got to have a, co- a croissant, right? Yeah. A, a real, you know, French pastry, right? Uh, almost breakfast uh, pastry because I have one with coffee. At that time, I was, I got to watch my weight these days, so I'm cutting down on them. But uh, it, that was just a little fun anecdote. Yeah, and we met around lunchtime or something. But um, thank you for the very good memories. And then as you get to know someone, you I got a good respect for you that all the good work you've been doing. And then we meet Oliver Stone and we're together going up for dinner every night with him. And um, and of course, Jim DiEugenio, we already knew. But, you know, there's there's kind of these things about uh, similarities in, in ideas of research and that. And then so many people that that are, are friends for whatever reason. But in this case, we had a common interest in amateur historians on a certain topic what really happened and I never went to university anything like for this so what you know it's up to you to pick up your socks and 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 read and investigate and try to decipher what's the truth from the uh from the bs and then you just you get to root out the people that you want to leave you know by the sidelines and uh and uh, anyway I'm just getting around to saying that I'm really glad every time I talk to you we both know the topic You've really impressed a lot of people with your ingenuity of, of getting into all the Jim Garrison files, things that I had those files for such a long time and, and didn't know an awful lot about them. I, you know, They're overwhelming is what they are. They're just overwhelming. And so as you've been chipping away at them, it gives me you know, the inspiration. Well, you know, Paul's going through everything. I should start going through. 
and then uh, you've been inspiring other people. Every time you're on, I get at least ten requests for the files. You know. Oh yeah. yeah at at that... least, but you know, just every time people hear the show and they go, "What these files are talking about? What are they?" And then. I, I email them for free. You know, it's not a big deal. It just, if you want them, here they are. They're about two gigabytes, 1.9, I think, gigs. And people are just so impressed with what Jim Garrison had on his uh, desk, you know, in his filing can cabinet. I you, can I give you, Len, an example yeah, of how go I'm ahead. Yeah, please. Just a quick, quick example. I, I wasn't going to talk about that today. But you know how Paul Abbott from Australia is doing a huge index on the uh, garrison files. And what that will do, I think it's got, uh, what, 11 columns, you were saying, 11 fields uh, of information for, uh, you know, so you'll be able to say, well, uh, for instance, if you were to click uh, Guy Pardon Bannister. me for one moment. The 11 columns, if you don't know anyone, it re refers to like an Excel spreadsheet. Yes. So you can have the name of the document. And then the next column would be the people who are discussed and then the locations, right? And then the other, just there's 11 columns deep of items. If you want to start searching for something, right? The number of times yeah. Mexico City is mentioned in the document, then you can find it like that, right? That's right. Okay, so uh, I'll go back on something I had done with those files. I had found, you know, a lot of Clay Shaw signatures, in the files, like th documents Clay Shaw would sign in his duties as uh, the, the head of the International Trade Mart and some property deals. So uh, Garrison got a hold of quite a few uh, documents that uh, had his signature on it. Then he found, you know, he found a library card with a Clem Bertrand signature. And it, it was linked to the International Trade Mart the phone number on the library card uh, didn't lead to anywhere, though. So at first they discarded it as a hoax document. But after a while they said, you know what, those signatures look alike. So that inspired me to get a, a, a forensic uh, handwriting expert to analyze the Clem Bertrand signatures and the Clay Shaw uh, ones. And, and without saying that they were a perfect match, he said, you could hypothesize that they came from the same person. She did specify that we weren't working with originals, you know, so she qualified it, but it just added itself as further evidence. Now, that had been discarded. Those, those library cards, the naysayers said that someone in the library felt that the cards were a hoax, you know, like that they were discarded but on I think very flimsy reasons but nevertheless they were discarded now on another element is Clay Shaw would sign I think it's Clem Bertrand because he would sign Clem Bertrand or Clay Bertrand uh, but sometimes Clem Bertrand but he, he would sign a registry in an airport a VIP lounge and he would sign and the uh, person you know the, one of the hosts there recognized Clay Shaw and said I recognize that, and here's what he signed. And, and she signed an affidavit. And uh, Garrison had that signature analyzed by a handwriting expert and found it to be the same uh, handwriting uh, that Clay Shaw had. Okay? 
But, you know, the opposition brought in their counter experts and they were able to, uh, you know, kind of neutralize that proof. Here's what I haven't compared, though, is I haven't been able to get that signature. Okay, the signature of the registry in the VIP lounge. I can't find it yet. I don't know if it's in the garrison files. Paul Abbott will be trying to find it, but it may exist somewhere else, you know. So if anybody in your audience knows of where we can get that signature, it might be in a book, it might be in in the Clay Shaw uh, trial, you know. The the uh, if ever I could get that, because then if you could compare the two Clem Bertrand signatures, that is, the Clem Bertrand on the registry and the Clem Bertrand on the library card. And if they were found, you couldn't, you couldn't discount both. You know, you couldn't say, well, in one case we have, um, you know, a, a hoax for the library cards. And then, uh, you know, uh, she was the, uh, the lady at the, uh, the counter was simply wrong. There would be no explaining. You can't, connect a hoax with a library card with the same sort of signature with the VIP lounge signature. So that's something I'm hoping to get my hands on. So if anybody in your audience, if that rings a bell, or maybe you can send Len, uh, you know, a link to that signature, Paul Abbott is going to try and find it in the, because he has an index, the whole, um, the whole, uh, you know, uh, whole uh, file uh, collection of Garrison, but uh, that, that that's interesting there, because imagine that, eh? if it was exactly the same signature, then, you know, you, I think it's proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that Clem Bertrand and Clay Shaw are the same person, but this would be a really interesting addition. Well, very good. If we have any listeners, they know how to get a hold of me, and uh, usually I have an email for a guest, so I can forward your email as well, Paul. Yeah, that'd be great. That would be great. Now, we were just speaking, I think, about a month ago about the upcoming document release that was was supposed to come up, and there was a, a court case that will be coming up, I think, geez, on the 13th. But uh, the optimism is down because there was a few documents released, and you can give me the exact number, but it's just over a 1,000 documents that were released. Uh, I think it's 1,103, if, I, if, I, if I'm correct. I, I have a link to that. It's 1,100 and a few there, a couple more. Right. Now, you and other researchers that you're working with have gone over a few of the things. What can you tell us just about what was released? Well, okay. First, I want to qualify myself uh, with regard to these particular releases. Some people are way more knowledgeable about releases in general, you know, like there have been waves of releases, right, since uh, since the mid-1990s. You know, what I end up getting when I do my research is uh, what filters through to Mary Farrell and the National Archives and all that. So I, I can't say that I've gone through the re- releases as they would be coming out, except this time I said, what the heck, I'll do it, you know, because the last release was June 27th. That's the one where we had the 1,100 files. There was a group email sent to about 50 people. I think it was Alan Dale or someone said, hey, you know, uh, here's the link to these releases. So anybody can, you know what, I'll send you the, I think you have that link, uh, Len, but I'll send you the link to the releases if your uh, audience, you, you can put it on the, 
show notes. Yeah, very good. Yeah, so I'll do that. So a lot of people say that to evaluate the releases, you have to do it with respect to what's been released beforehand, because a lot of them are re-releases with maybe a few fewer redactions. Surprisingly, apparently some of the releases, I've been reading this, have more redactions, if you can believe it. So what I'm not able to do is to look at the releases with respect to previous releases. I cannot tell you if something is brand new, for instance, or if it's partially new or, or whatnot. So I can only give you um, my observations on, on, on a few things. And then I'll tell you, though, I did find certain things I found interesting, whether they're new or not. They're new to me. Okay, so I, I stuff I didn't know, and maybe just because nobody picked up on it, or I didn't pick up on it before. So, look, generally, Len, what I find is, first of all, the files are very complex. When you read them, in this case, most we're looking at mostly CIA files in this case. There's some FBI files, there's some, some files, but we're looking at mostly CIA files. And... The CIA will not blow a, leg a legend in these files. You know, they're not going to blow uh, uh, too much information. So the reliability of the information in there is, you know, they'll tell you what they want to tell you. You know, they're, 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 you're not going to get the full picture. One person who warned me about not putting 100% faith in these files is John Newman, okay, who has an awful lot of uh, experience in, in intelligence. The other thing is there are a lot of pseudonyms and cryptonyms that are being thrown around. So anybody who reads these files, what they should do is they should open up, find the cryptonyms on Mary Farrell. Mary Farrell has decoded or has the decoded, I mean, hundreds of cryptonyms. And it's really well done. So when you see Lee Cookie 1, Lee Cookie 1 is June Cobb. OK, she also has a pseudonym. I forget the pseudonym that, 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 that she has, but she has a cryptonym that is Lee Cookie. And Lee, by the way, L-I, is usually pertaining to Mexico. When she was in Cuba, June Cobb, she had a Nam something. I forget the, but uh, anything related to Q Cuba is Am, for instance, I think Am spell is uh, the code name for the DRE, for instance. Uh, don't quote me on that. Uh, you have, you know, so you have all these and people like uh, John Newman have busted a lot of these, have decoded these cryptonyms. And now they're on the Mary Farrell. So when you read through these files, it's good to have them because they'll often say June Cobb was convinced by so-and-so to do such a thing. And the so-and-so is a cryptonym. So, you know, <laughs> you so that's how complex the files are. There are still, Len, in every file I'm looking at, uh, just about, there are still a lot of redactions. So for some reason, they're thinking that if they identify a person or a place, that they'll be revealing something so important, even though it happened in 1967 or something. So go figure. The other thing I noticed is... I'm very suspicious that these files weren't cherry-picked. And I'll tell you that the things that make me suspicious about some of them is you look at them and you, you ask yourself, well, 
if that was all there was to that file, you know, you're reading a file, why wasn't this released 15 years ago? It's a big nothing burger. So you're asking yourself and say, well, is it because there was actually more attached to it that they had to doctor or massage or something? I don't know. Okay, I can't prove that. The other thing that I noticed is I found some really thick files on William Harvey, who was, uh, you know, the, the, the person, really a person of interest in the assassination, who, uh, you know, uh, was very involved in executive action and regime changes. There are very thick files on David Atlee Phillips. There's a thick one on the DRE, June Cobb. But, you know, you get information, you will get travel vouchers in some cases. Then you'll get what you call fitness reports. Fitness reports is the evaluation of uh, a subject. But whenever you get to 1963, there's nothing. You know, so if I were to do an exam uh, with the files I'm looking at, there, the 1,100 files, if I were to say, you know, put up on an Excel chart, information, years mentioned in the file, and I would say 1967 has five files, 1964 has five or three, what you would find is there isn't a tenth of the the, the files that relate to 1963, which is, of course, the year of the assassination. Example, William Harvey, you will have his travel vouchers for a certain year. But people are really interested in his travel voucher, vouchers for 1963 because I think it was in the Devil's Chessboard. David Talbot exposed that shortly before the assassination, he was in Dallas. Okay. Same thing with David Attlee Phillips was supposed to have been in Dallas. And then, you know, you have guys like Lansdale and all that. So, so I, I can't confirm that there's a negative template there, but I'm saying, oh boy, okay, why, why am I never finding anything on 1963? And it just comes back all the time. So anyway, I don't, you know, that isn't, uh, I've asked people, I, I've asked, am I the only one, you know, who, who who gets the feeling that 1963 is being left out. And a few people, uh, because, you know, the, the, who went through the releases had that feeling. But, uh, you know, I can't say it's scientific. And I can't, I can't say this for a fact, because if I were to go back to previous releases, maybe there's some stuff on 1963 or a lot more than what I'm finding now. But I, I, I'm... I'm looking at that and it's raising a few alarms for me. Um, so just generally speaking, um, you know, you know, it's a fact that the Secret Service destroy files, right? That is a fact. And the ARB uh, noted that in their report. They, they, they said before they could get to Secret Service files, the Secret Service all the travel uh, information on uh, JFK and his motorcades and everything, they couldn't get anything. And why was that important? Well, in the research I did, it, is you could see that in some of his previous, uh, you know, his previous uh, travels in 1963, there were similar plots to kill him, like in Tampa, like in Chicago. Like, uh, you know, and and we know that there were instructions for the Secret Service to keep 
information about these plots secret. And then the IRB comes around, and what do they do? They destroy them. So what, what we're getting throughout time, we've gotten an awful lot of important things, right? The Lopez report is amazingly important, uh, uh, you know, because it, it really, uh, you know, sets the stage to prove that uh, Oswald was impersonated in Mexico City. We got an awful lot of, we found out that Earl Cabell, one of the higher ups in the CIA during the Alan Dulles reign, another guy who didn't like Kennedy, who got fired by Kennedy, well, that his brother was the mayor of Dallas and that he was a CIA asset. I hate to correct you, but I think you got it wrong. It's Charles Cabell. And his, Charles Cabell. His yeah. brother was Earl, the mayor. Okay, and I said... I think you said Earl. Earl. Oh, okay. So Regardless, it, it, we, we've kind of got it straight. So General Charles Cabell yeah. and then Earl Cabell. And then uh, documents that come out that he had been at arm's length in the intelligence agencies as well, Earl, you know, whether it's an informant or whatever, right? It's the same yeah. thing about the, the sixth floor, you know, the museum and the guys who kind of kept that dog and pony show going. Oh, yeah. What's the name? Uh, Gra- Briggs or Griggs or something like that. Yeah, I, he was a CIA, right? Yeah, well, they had said that on his obituary when he passed yeah. away, right? Yeah. So uh, despite that, I um, I did find some documents that I, I'll share with your uh, your, your, your audience. But look, uh, before I go to that, I, you know, I think we have an awful lot of hardworking researchers, but I don't know if there's a, a, you know, like a systemic way that the files are being combed through. I'm realizing that if I had gone through the files, whether they were Garrison's files or these ones, say I had done this exercise 12 years ago, uh, connections, I wouldn't be making any connections, you know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't be making as many connections. I wouldn't be knowing, you know, I would have trouble figuring out the cryptonyms. But now when I read something, and I'll give you later an example with June Cobb, and it says something about her, I'm able to make a link that I wouldn't have been able to make 10 years ago or, or, or not. And those links that you can make are the ones say, wait a minute. And you'll see with June Cobb, uh, June Cobb how... You know, the little intricacies. The devil is in the details, okay? And I'm going to show you a few things here that, you know, I found interesting. So, you know, it would be important, though. I I think, I don't know how we're organized as a group to go through the files. So, for instance, what John Newman found for uh, his latest book, it's stuff that was out there. And he fell on it. And he came across things and he said, oh, my God, this is interesting. He says, yeah, well, this information I am giving you was out in 2007, but only exposed in his book in 2023. And this isn't a criticism of anybody. It's just that, you know, imagine if the CIA or the FBI or the Warren Commission or the HSCA, you know, had didn't have their hands tied and really had the teams and the money and the access to information, to be able to analyze this stuff, this this case would be solved, you know. Yet what we're doing is we're finding little pieces here and there that, you know, kind of give us the, the, the backdrop and the, the uh, you know, they give us strong, strong clues on, about what happened. Anyway, uh, so I, I'm just insisting on, I'm hoping that there could be, you know, uh, a systematic way of going through the files that we can uh, 
because I bet you there's so much that has been released that we haven't combed through properly. And, and I know John Newman's of that opinion and others are of that opinion also. And thank God for people like Malcolm Blunt and I think it's, uh, I forget his first name, but Mr. Bacchus. Is it Joe Bacchus or? It seems to me he's someone who goes through the files very, very meticulously and uh, and a lot of people do. But, you know, so we can only do what we can do. Um, yeah, there's a thick file on Robert Mayhew. Robert Mayhew was a key person. Uh, the Office of Security contacted him and used him as a cutout to set up the assassination uh, projects with the mafia, the you know the assassination of Castro. So Mayu uh, is the one who set up the Johnny Rosselli link, which led to links with Giancana, Traficante, and uh, it ends up that when you look at his files, there's quite a few links between him and the CIA. I think that was known. I found out that his son, Robert Mayhew, um, he got special clearance and he worked for the, uh, as part of the CIA staff, but he got what you call a QK enchant clearance. Now, what was that? that? That's an indicator used by the central cover staff and the Office of Security, and it's part of a program for clearing businesses and other entities with access to classified material. So with a, Q, uh, a QK enchant clearance, an individual or an entity could be used as a cutout, which basically is what happened with Robert May. We became a cutout between the CIA and the, the, the mafia for a while. Uh, and they wanted them to be the cutout to be the, you know, the assassins uh, of uh, Castro and make it plausibly denial. It ends up that QK Enchant, by the way, is the same clearance that Clay Shaw had. Clay Shaw had that type of clearance. So you get a much better feel of how, uh, you know, people like Clay Shaw and Robert Mayhew and people of that ilk are used by the CIA for special projects. And you can imagine that uh, you know, Clay Shaw was sort of an interesting character to use in New Orleans to create distance between uh, the whole FPCC activities uh, and the, you know, the setting up of Oswald as a pro-Castro uh, Marxist. Uh, so when you read the files, that's a good thing to keep an eye on. I'll get to another file that I found very interesting. This is interesting. Okay, so... <laughs> okay, you know how Jim Garrison was the uh, the object of slander campaigns organized by the press, organized by intelligence. The thing that I found interesting is MI5. Okay, MI5 provided the CIA with something I don't think ever surfaced. Okay. But basically, it, it, what they were saying about Jim Garrison was that a secret and reliable source has reported that the Bertrand Russell Peace Foundation has been in touch with Jim Garrison. 
Our source states that the initiative in this contact appears to have come from the foundation and the purpose of it seems to be per to persuade Garrison to write an article about the late President Kennedy's assassination, which presumably the foundation could use in some way. Okay, now that foundation was uh, uh, being described as an organization that was uh, pro-communist, you know, uh, that they were provocateurs and everything. Now, they passed that on to uh, the FBI in London, and it says, I would stress that the MI5 source is very sensitive and request that this office be advised in advance if any executive action is to be taken on the basis of the above information. Anyway, I was looking at that and I said, boy, does this smack of more uh, piling on Garrison. I, I don't recall that ever making it into a book or, or making it into the uh, you know the official uh, the official lambasting of of um, Garrison, but that was interesting. Now, this one is <laughs> this one uh, is I, in a way I can't get over it, but let me try and explain it. It's a bit complicated. Uh, Let's go back to John Humans uncovering Popov's mold. Um, in there, there's a Russian, a Russian defector called Nozenko. And Nozenko defects, and he's in the U.S. in 1964 before the Warren Commission issues its final report. And he is insisting that the Russia never had much of an interest in Oswald whatsoever. He was a lousy, uh, uh, he is a fake defector, and his information was unreliable. And he was shown to be lying uh, consistently. He, you know, he, many people didn't find him credible. Those who wanted to believe him were the FBI. The reason the FBI and later the Warren Commission and others wanted Nazenko to be uh, to be uh, bona fide, well, for many reasons. First of all, they wanted to go. I'm talking about the FBI and the Warren Commission wanted to go with the lone nut, and lone nut meant not just no Confederates in the U.S., no international Confederates. So it suited their purposes to hear that Russia or Cuba had no interest in Oswald or very little interest. The truth is, is they had a lot of interest in Oswald, but that they never ended up using him in any sort of, pro as far as we know, that the Russians did. And it didn't make sense that they not have any interest in it. Just on the surface, the guy was a U-2 radar operator and the U-2 was causing fits right, for the Russians. How could they not have interest in an ex-Marine defector who spent two years in Russia? It didn't make any sense. So anyway, Nozenko, uh, nevertheless, he suited that purpose. And in a way, it demonstrates that the FBI and the um, 
the Warren Commission uh, didn't want to investigate. They didn't even want to investigate that possibility. So it shows that they had a real closed mind on anything that had the word plot or conspiracy or confederates. Anyway, what happens in around 1980, a real defector comes in. His name is Papushkin. And John Newman found information that was, I think, declassified in 2007 about this Papushkin. Papushkin was in Minsk. Minsk is where Oswald spent most of his time in Russia, where he met Marina, where he worked in a radio factory. And Papushkin says, oh, no, we had officers, case officers, that would meet him regularly. And he even gave their names. And it's it's in John's book and, uh, and my article about his book. And he says, these people, we had thick files on them. So this, again, proved that Nozenko was lying. And it also provided a link with one of the people who was really backing Nozenko, a guy called Bruce Soli. Bruce Soli, John Newman hypothesizes that he was a mole, okay, a high-level mole for the Russians, uh, you know, working for the Russians. And what, anyway, long story short, that whole mole story, the, you know, and Nozenko and everything, it was real bad news for people like Angleton, who got duped. It was bad news for Dulles, because this guy, Nozenko, uh, not Nozenko, but solely uh, turned the, uh, you know, the Russian division inside out. He really, really, if uh, Newman's, anyway, a mole did, but if it was solely, that would be the person who, who accomplished that. Okay. So what did I find? So this is all Papushkin information relating to John Newman's research. Now, John insists on the importance of getting corroboration when you get proof like that. And I think I found it in the releases. And let me try and explain what I did find is in the releases, you have a guy called Nikonov, and I think Nikonov was a liaison after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, anyway, he became a liaison between the KGB and the CIA. They were cooperating more, and they were sharing information on certain things, including Oswald. And in the files, what you find out is they asked him questions, and he went through thick files on Oswald, once again proving that Nozenko was full of BS. Okay, I mean, the, the, the thick files. And that's exactly what Pushkin had said, is no, no, we, we had a lot of information on him. Now, one thing that, that uh, stuck out for me was the following, okay? Uh, let's go back to Oswald. Was he a good shot? Okay. If you ask me, the evidence points to him being not good because from what I remember, in the Marines, there's reference to two official tests that he took. The first one put him, because you know when you're, I think uh, there are three levels, 
that you can get in the Marines. There's, I, and I might be wrong in the names here, but I think the lowest level is marksman. Second is sharpshooter. And I think the highest level is expert. Anyway, something along those lines. So the first time he is tested, I think it's in, in California. He's borderline between marksman and sharpshooter. Near the time that he leaves, he barely makes marksman, right? Then he goes to Russia, what we find out there. Oh, and by the way, most of the Marines, or many Marines that were spoken to said, no, he's not a good shot. Uh, they even had a term for him, but a number of them said he wasn't a good shot. Then he goes to Russia. I remember reading that when they bring him out hunting, they didn't find him to be a good hunter. Um, the other thing, let's look at this. Let's look at this in two ways, okay. The Warren Commission claims that he took a shot to try and assassinate um, General Walker. Well, one of two, I don't think he did it, which would prove that there's uh, some sort of conspiracy in creating a, a false persona of Oswald going on. But assume he did take that shot and he missed a stationary target. Okay, he misses a stationary target like that uh, and he has all the time in the world. Whereas he performs the way he did in, in Daily Plaza, you know, on a moving target, it, it doesn't work, right? For most people. Let's keep going. The other problems I brought up is if you assemble a lousy rifle, any rifle, by the way, like uh, Manlicher Carcano, and that's they speculate that he may have assembled it using a dime or it could have been done that way. I'm sorry, but if you assemble a rifle then, and I've done target practice, you're not going to be very precise until you sight it. Now, sighting it, I've already talked about this. How do you sight a rifle? You shoot groupings on a target and you see if the groupings tend to be top left or top right or, or you know, and then if they, they tend to be in a general area, you adjust, okay, you adjust the barrel and the uh, sighting with, you know, with the, uh, the dials on the rifle to sight it. You, you can't just, you know, assemble a, a Manlicher Carcano. And, and I'm surprised, by the way, that that's not often brought up in the, the arguments. But this idea that you, you assemble a rifle and, and, you know, you pull off this shot. We also know that, <laughs> it, 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 let's, let's look at it again. Now, you're out of the Marines. You don't have any known practice period. Um, a, a, a fellow research said that would be like leaving the PGA Tour for three years, coming on, and then winning the Masters. You, you, you don't. I've done some target shooting. It's very technical. The breathing is technical. The positioning is technical. The, uh, the adjustment of the rifle is technical. The way you hold a sling and you make your arm steady is very technical. 
So you, you don't just come uh, out. And, so I think the plotters knew that. And that's why they had these events in the sportstrome. The sportstrome would have had an Oswald practicing. The only problem with that is he was with Castro-like or Castro uh, people that were acting even one guy who was dressed up like Castro, who had the fatigues like Castro, the beard like Castro. So he was with escorts. So those practice sessions that could have said, well, you know, no, uh, we have uh, material proof here from target practice at the sportsroom and witnesses that confirmed that he practiced and he's a good shot. So they could have used that. But they couldn't anymore because they wanted to go the no-nut route. And unfortunately, the people that were with Oswald store up uh, or an Oswald lookalike uh, stood out like sore thumbs. Okay, all that, Len, to say here's what I found. And this is in one of the files. So Nikonov, the liaison I was talking about, who's with, uh, you know, in Russia, uh, sends this information to the CIA. Nikonov is now confident that Oswald was at no time an agent controlled by the KGB. From the description of Oswald in the files, he doubted that any would, anyone could control Oswald, but noted that the KGB watched him closely and constantly while he was in the USSR. Okay, that part backs up Papushkin, backs up John Newman, and shows that, hey, you know what? Nazenko, likely a fake defector. But let's keep going. He commented that Oswald had a stormy relationship with his uh, Soviet wife, who wrote him incessantly. The file also reflected that Oswald was a poor shot when he tried target firing in the USSR. Let me repeat that. The file also reflected that Oswald was a poor shot when he tried target firing in the USSR. As far as I know, that's the first time I had heard of that. You know, I had heard about Russians and all. I never knew that he tried target firing in the USSR. But what that tells you is a third independent party who did the most recent measurement of his shooting skills, because this is after he defected, says that he was a poor shot. Now, throw everything else we know about Daily Plaza, add that, put that in your pipe, and smoke it. You try telling me now that, oh yeah, he could have pulled it off. Little detail, some people, I sent that to, I didn't get, you know, it was weird, but I consider that to be hugely important, and it's very corroborative. Hey, boy, let's go on. Got some nice ones here. Oh, David Atlee Phillips, I always had some interest in him. This is a central uh, intelligence uh, CIA document, April 28, 1975. I found this interesting. There was a Chilean situation the Americans wanted to act. They wanted to be involved in, I don't want to say regime change, but regime control. 
of course, the CIA pulled out a plan. And basically, Nixon was president at the time. And Nixon had decided, I'm quoting here, had decided that an Allende regime in Chile was not acceptable to the United States. The president asked the agency to prevent Allende from coming to power or to unseat him. The president authorized $10 million for this purpose if needed. Further, the agency is to carry out this mission without coordination with the department departments of state or defense. During the meeting, it was decided that Mr. Thomas Karamessines, DTP, would have overall responsibility for this project. He would be assigned, assisted by a special task force set up for this purpose in the Western Hemisphere Division. The chief of the task force would be Mr. David Phillips. So, you know, our friend David Phillips, who was involved in regime change in 1954 with our Benz, the Bay of Pigs. Uh, now we're seeing this with uh, Chile. He got awards for what he did. You know, he got an award for what he did for uh, for the removal of our, of our Benz. Well, I found that I found that to be extremely interesting. That that this guy is still at it in 1975 under Nixon. Uh, you know, so. I guess for your, your audience, Larry Hancock did a great analysis how a cater of like-minded people were the people involved in regime change. These people included people like E. Howard Hunt, David Atlee Phillips, Tracy Barnes, okay, uh, William Harvey, Alan Dulles, of course, James Angleton. Well, you're seeing a member, a key member of that cater, uh, you know, uh, again, involved all the way to 1975. And what was the Kennedy assassination? It was a regime change. It was a regime change operation. So who would you entrust to do a regime change operation? It would be the people who know how to do it. The people who wrote ZR Rifle, the people who were involved in these things in previous attempts and continue to be involved thereafter. So that was a that's another file. By the way, I could send you the links of these files, uh, you know, if if you want, Len. And, sure, uh, yeah, send the links that way. Uh, Raul can. Um, uh, okay, I'll do that for sure. I'll that. send you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I believe his name is also pronounced Thomas Caramassini's. Caramassini's, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Caramassini's. Thank you. Thank you. I always learn stuff when you interview me, and I try and remember it. Caramassini's. Okay. Messini's. Well, you know what? Uh, th the strange thing is, I wrote a song about Ed Lansdale. Uh, it's called "The Ballad of Ed Lansdale," and in the middle of the song, I just imagined, you know, that um, I think the thing with with Lansdale and these other people is that there is no real place that you can go and brag about it. You, you, you can't ever talk about things you've done. And when you overthrow, you know, a government in the Philippines and the, in Vietnam and other places, and then in Dallas, right? These people just with a, a nod, you know, they know they're the group that, uh, like Fletcher Prouty said, are carrying the football, and they travel all over the world. And uh, if there's an overthrow of government, it's the same people involved all the time. Anyway, as a you know, as a lark, I imagined like a, like an awards dinner where Alan Dulles would be handing out awards and introducing the, the head table with the people that were involved in this, right? 
and Thomas Caramassini's was one of them, right? Uh, have you ever heard that song I wrote, The Ballad of Ed Lansdale? No, you have to send it to me because oh. I, I, I love these songs. I, I read a poem by Sean Phillips about uh, David Atley Phillips. He writes a poem, and if you go on his website, you can find it. It's quite accusatory. Okay, well, I'll, I should make a link to that song uh, as well in the show notes. We'll do that, but uh, I'll send it to you right after this interview, yeah. I think you'll get a kick out of it. <laughs> You're going to like this one, Len. It's, uh, it's another release, and it's about... Priscilla Johnson McMillan, one of your favorites, right? And look, all it is, is it's like, it seems to be HSE handwritten notes by someone not identified. And the way they identify her, and I'll read it, McMillan, comma, Priscilla Johnson. Just, just Priscilla. Priscilla Johnson. Yeah. But they park McMillan, Priscilla Johnson. I, I'm, I'm quoting from, from the handwritten note. Then underneath that, it's marked, interviewed executive session, own attorney. Under that, you know, it's written informant. <laughs> it's right in the HSC notes, informant, you know. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we all knew that she was, um, she was uh, scouted by the CIA. And, um, and, uh, but still, I found it really interesting that the name, the word informant is written right there. Oh, boy. Okay. L listen to this. What happened with this file is interesting. It talks about a Raymond Joseph Alvarez Durant. He was recruited in 1955, okay, and he ended up working in Mexico City for the Mexico City station. And look, it's marked he was in charge of surveillance team and also was in charge of photo surveillance of the Soviet mission, including processing the film, okay? And he had a cryptonym called Lee Empty. And let me just make sure. Photo of man alleged to be Oswald was taken from limited base house. Now, I want to keep going. So Lee Empty, uh, Len, was six. That's a cryptonym. Was recruited in June 1954 as member of a physical surveillance team. The key word is physical. In December 1955, he and his wife occupied the limited base house he he took pictures for 13 years and was terminated in 1968 okay and then he signed a claim of secrecy which he witnessed with alvarez okay alvarez presumably was the individual who developed the photos which lee mt6 took as well as the photo tech coverage of the other two base houses. His name was, uh, Scantling's true name, because Scantling seems to be a, a pseudonym that is being used. True name is Juan Fraiz Ramirez, contract agent. Okay, so Lienti covered primarily with photo coverage of the Soviet installation, and he was active from 1955 through June 1972. It supported two of the original three baseholds, which were, uh, well, it's Mark Limited had been terminated, okay? And then there's someone called Lee Kala. He was activated in 1957. He had to provide photo coverage of the rear. That was the garden parking lot area of the Soviet embassy. Now, 
what happened from there, uh, uh, so what, what we've done here is we've identified two photographers. Okay, a photographer and a, a developer. And I said, I never heard these names before, not even in the Lopez report. Now, I, I set that out. I said, anybody, can anybody tell me about these people? It seems to talk about specific photographers. And they don't seem to have been questioned. Now, uh, one guy answered, you know Jeff Meek? Uh, Jeff Meek is a researcher. He did some work for, uh, wrote some things for, uh, for Kennedys and King. And Jeff, he, he got to me and he said, well, look, can you question Dan Hardwick? Can you talk to him? And can you, you, you find out from him if, you, if he's, what does he know about this? And uh, listen, I, I, I'll try and, he said that, that, uh, that Dan Hardway, I mean, let me read it. Let me just read it. First of all, he didn't hear back from uh, his email, so he called him. And I said, do you have a few minutes? Okay, and he didn't have time. Uh, Dan did not have time to talk about it. And, uh, you know, it was a 30-second conversation, and he said, I asked him if there was a better time to call him, and he said he didn't have anything on those two names that, that Jeff Meek sent, sent him. So Dan Hardway does not know about these two names. Okay, from, from what Jeff uh, told me. Uh, so that's a big mystery right now. Who are these two people? Did they take, you know, and why weren't they questioned? What do they know about? Because that's a, that's a huge controversy. The fact that Oswald goes to Mexico City, uh, somehow they got the photography all wrong about him, that the the, the, all the cameras weren't working. Now we have the names of one photographer and one developer and the, the two key people, at least one of the key people, who did an amazing job of an, analyzing the whole Mexico City charade, Dan Hardway, uh, doesn't really know about it. I, I, I will submit to you that this is an area, an area of extreme interest. I, extreme interest. So I... I don't know how, how, what to conclude about that, but it certainly shows you, you know, when you go through the files, you find uh, things, you know, like, like that. And I, I you know, I, I'd really, I'd really like to hear, you know, like what others might think about it. I, I sent that information to about 40 people who were on that thread and nobody, nobody answered. Nobody seems to know what this is all about but look that document is very clear who are these two people who is the developer and who is the photographer and did they do they seem to say that they took you know that the it wasn't just uh, cameras working there were actual photographers that would be uh, doing things were they managing maybe the equipment i doubt it Certainly, if there was a breakdown in the equipment, and that's what they did, they know about it. So it would seem that these two people were kept at arm's length of any investigation. Uh, so I find that uh, supremely interesting.
So, yeah, Len, those are some of the key things that I've been able. I've only been through half the files uh, that have been released uh, in June, uh, and those are things. Again, I don't know how new this stuff is. Well, but it I doesn't never matter how it. new it is. I just once again, it doesn't shed any light of the responsibility of Lee Oswald. There's oh. no, you know, Lee did this. We finally figured out how he did this, you know, right? No. And, um, you know, it's almost, uh, uh, you know, an exercise in futility. But, but you know, for people who are interested, they just go through it and find more and more about the footsteps, the footprints of the intelligence agencies are behind this. Hey, you know what? I'm, th I'm realizing I'm forgetting a big one. And no, I, I, ahead, yeah. I said I'd talk about June Cobb. But you're right. Um, okay, got June Cobb. Uh, how do I attack this one? June Cobb. Okay, so I'll try and give you, you can find her background on the web, anybody who's interesting. John Newman wrote an awful lot about June Cobb. Very interesting person. Uh, in the early 19th, 1950s, she has Latino boyfriend, a boyfriend uh, who's well connected, and that boyfriend of hers and his network are involved in sleazy drug dealing. Eventually, in the early 1950s, she becomes an informant for the FBI on, uh, you know, on uh, narcotics and narcotics uh, dealing. She is an informant, then, right? Oh, she's an informant for the FBI. Okay, let's start off with that. In the early 1950s. Right. By 1960, okay, she, she, by the way, is someone who sets up honey traps. She's, uh, you know, she has affairs with uh, CIA agents, you name it. And she ends up in Cuba in 1960 doing translations for Fidel Castro. The latest she would have been recruited by the CIA, according to their own files, would have been in May 1960. That's the latest. She was likely recruited before that. But there are traces of her being, tra uh, you know, uh, I think that she, she was a CIA plant even before she got her work with, uh, with Castro. Okay, so... She then, after she finishes her, her project, I mean, after a while, uh, I think it's in 1961, she leaves and she joins uh, the group or the CIA in their Mexico City station. She is working for David Atlee Phillips, eventually. Okay, so eventually she is working for David Atlee Phillips. I believe she was probably working for him when she was in Cuba, but we know she answered to David Atlee Phillips in, um, in uh, sorry, in Mexico City. Now, things that you find in the files are that she was involved with the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. The Fair Play for Cuba Committee, its first ad to say it existed was in March 1960. She, the latest she was recruited was May 
1960. One month later, the, that ad appears. What that means, Len, is her being part of the fair play for Cuba committee had to be CIA sanctioned. It was part of her legend. Okay, it had to be. One of the things she did do as part, uh, you know, involving the Fair Play for Cuba committee, is she helped organize illegal trips, free trips for students that would want to visit Castro and learn more about Castro and, you know, uh, hear Castro propaganda or whatever. Often on those trips, you had informants. One of them I covered in my Exposing the FPCC or the Prior Plots article. One guy was named John Glenn. And he was one of these students who was an informant, who was an ex-Marine, who was an ex-intelligence guy. And he joined the Fair Play for Cuba committee basically as an espionage ruse. Uh, I mentioned how the CIA likely helped Santiago Garriga open the Fair Play for Cuba committee in Miami, of all the places. Okay, so what I, I'm showing here is this June Cobb, who joins the Fair Play for Cuba committee, it, 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 in other words, when Oswald joined the Fair Play for Cuba committee, it was a well-established pattern of using uh, ex-Marines, uh, informants, uh, intelligence speech. She was an informant, okay, to join the Fair Play for Cuba committee. And, and there, there can be no doubt that if you look at when she was known to have been recruited by the CIA and when she joined the Fair Play for Cuba committee, there's no doubt that her uh, her involvement with the Fair Play for Cuba committee was CIA sanctioned. That lends a lot of credence to uh, Oswald following the same uh, roadmap. Okay, he, he, you know we know that he, he his sojourn in Russia, his intelligence link. So, you know we shouldn't be surprised that he joins also the Fair Play for Cuba committee. Here's where it gets really interesting. When Oswald goes to Mexico City, they have an awful lot, I mean, the CIA and intelligence have an awful lot of time, a lot of, an awful lot of trouble proving that Oswald was actually there. They don't have his pictures. They don't have him on a tape. Okay. They, uh, you know, and, you know, everything looks fabricated and they, they have... Ruth Payne, you know, just rolling out evidence, uh, you know, that, that somehow the Dallas police force would have missed when they searched her place. Anyway, but one of the witnesses that places Oswald with a bunch of leftists at a twist party, okay, in Mexico City is June Cobb. And when Dan Hardway... Finally, you know, they attacked uh, uh, David Atlee Phillips because an awful lot of the other witnesses on behalf of, you know, who were saying, they were saying that Oswald had Confederates and Oswald was seen accepting bribes and he was seen accepting money from Castro agents. They had to walk that back. But what they found out, uh, Len, was that, that, um, uh, that 
all these people who were making the false stories, they were all linked to David Adley Phillips. Okay, so the whole June Cobb, uh, you know, the whole June Cobb story reveals how informants are placed in the Fair Play for Cuba committee. Her, along with John Glenn, along with others, okay, that I cover in, in many of my articles. And it shows once again the omnipresence of David Atlee Phillips when it comes to Lee Harvey Oswald. So now you have another link. Remember his fight with Carlos Bringier. Well, Carlos Bringier was heading the uh, DRE chapter in New Orleans. Who set up the DRE? David Atlee Phillips. Okay, he has. Uh, there are links between David Atlee Phillips and Ed Butler. Okay, and Ed Butler is the one who sets up the interview. Now you have this June Cobb who answers to David Atlee Phillips. Okay, who joins the, C the uh, Fair Play for Cuba committee? Uh, you know, uh, in accordance, you know, or or as part of her legend organized by the CIA and she is one of the people that is saying oh I remember Oswald in Mexico City he was at a twist party with uh, with two uh, leftists there you know the or, or known leftists anyway I, that 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 whole file there when you when I saw when she was recruited and you look at the timeline of when she's recruited and when the Fair, Pay, Fair Play for Cuba committee goes into existence. It, it, you know, that's the type of link you can make, you know, and you can say, oh, OK, I'm starting to see the whole picture around the Fair Play for Cuba committee and uh, how they're using informants and and how they're using it to their advantage. Uh, so, yeah, that was the, the the other thing that I found really interesting in the files. And uh, I hadn't read, uh, you know, I wrote a lot about the Fair Play for Cuba committee, but I never talked, or I talked very little about June Cobb and the Fair Play for Cuba committee, but it's important. Those are the things that stand out so far. I, I, I don't know if I'll find other stuff, but I, I'm, there's still a lot of files to be read. Well, it's so interesting that you're going through them and also uh, others as well. So there's information out there. But like I said, it just kind of each each piece just says oh, yeah. Oswald wasn't there or it, this is a proof that he's impersonated. I mean, there can't be two people at the same place, you know. I mean, one person at the same place. There's a he's here, he's there, or wherever, right? And then and then if you if you subscribe to he was never in Mexico City, um, then you go, well, why this phony trail? Why why the impersonations? Why the cover stories? Because that uh, that just leads to the intelligence agencies, you know. And then uh, you can subscribe to well, if they had a role in it, uh, they pulled it off. They they laid the the groundwork, the legend of Lee Oswald, you know, make that legend. And then um, it, what you have done is shown other people who could have been to Patsy. There were other people in the pipeline, so they have a whole. <laughs> A whole assembly line. If they need somebody, they have people they can that can be called up and said, you know, uh, you're going to Russia. You're going to uh, be a defector. Okay, here's your new job, right? And then report back to us when you get back. 
How did they handle defectors? Where did they keep you? In a safe house? And, you know, did they give you a job? And One thing that strikes me about June Cobb is how they position her, okay, as being really good for a while. And then later on, okay, oh, wait a minute. She herself is a leftist. Uh, she herself is unstable. You know the word unstable? She herself is part of the Fair Play for Cuba committee. Very weird, you know, and she, of course, is connected to Castro, right? She worked for him, and she, she actually worked in his, you know, did translations directly for him. Uh, you know, it, it, it's fascinating, but I'm sure there's an awful lot more information about June Cobb and about, uh, but that we'll never, you know, we just won't get to. Uh, and, and, you know, look, uh, uh, what's his name? William Harvey. My God, you know, what What was he doing in 1963? Uh, very, and what was he doing in Dallas if if, uh, if that information that uh, David Talbot has is true, you know? So uh, I think we already have enough to get a very good idea of the picture of what happened. I, I, I you know, I, I, I'm not trying to win a court case here. I'm not trying to... Uh, convince naysayers I'm trying to you know for myself get a good idea of what happened and uh, as you say every time you look at this uh, you can see that you know I'm not going to say the CIA as a whole organization was behind a program uh, like they were for the Bay Pigs here I, I honestly think that compartmentalization in this case must have been extremely important you know, it's not the type of thing you want to let out to a ton of people. And, uh, you know, you, you, you know, I'm, I'm not sure you, you, you know, you, you, you would have great morale in the CIA if it as a group uh, is identified as, you know, the, the organization that took him out. So, uh, but when you look at an Alan Dulles and you look at a William Harvey and you look at a, yeah, David Atley Phillips, and you look at people that in, they're, they're per persons of extreme interest, and they're persons who did not like Kennedy. They didn't like him. They were all they all saw their careers, especially uh, Harvey Dulles uh, and others. See their 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 careers affected by Kennedy. And uh, anyway, uh, but look, th those are things that you can find when you know you look in the files and. Uh, uh, I, what do you think, Len, of the, this information from Russia that says, hey, you know, he did target practice, okay, and uh, and he, he was shown to be a poor shot? Well, at arm's length, if you don't believe that Lee Oswald did the shooting, then really... The, this whole history of where he did, where, wherever, is immaterial. Yeah. I mean, he's a good shot. He's a poor shot. He's a real defector. He doesn't, if he didn't, you know, when, when I stand back, um, I don't think he had anything to do with it, you know, other than he was a patsy, like he said. He was set up to, to go here, there, and um, um, what's his name? Michael Payne went to some of these weird... Um, communist meetings and things like that took you know yes. babysitted you know babysat you know took them around so um they really were making a legend they wanted to make something that they could blame somebody on and i'm just so interested in the parallels of the chicago plot 
of, um, like you mentioned, Tampa, Miami, even L.A. There was other people that were supposed to, this assassination was supposed to take place. And then I feel that uh, finally it was getting too near the end and they called in the heavy hitters, somebody like an Ed Lansdale and other people saying, look, get this done. And um, these guys like Bill Harvey, all, all, all these guys, that that was their business, overthrowing governments, right? Yeah. Uh, that's what they did. So, you know, uh, I don't think Lee had anything to do with uh, shooting General Walker either, the shooting there, right? No, no. But, but you know, um, you know, it's the same thing that, uh, you know, it's just an opinion. But when you stand back and you read, when you think, you go, well, this is a professional uh, setup. It's this guy from day one was set up. And uh, and then they, they cover up the whole, you know, the autopsy. And then and then the Warren Commission itself. This is not Lee Oswald reaching out from the grave, you know. Oh, obviously. Obviously. Uh, no, I find it very interesting. Um, boy, I'll tell you, uh, do you have an opinion on what the next steps are uh, with regard to Biden, Biden's latest refusal or his latest move. To, I mean, he's basically saying his job is done, right? And well, the bad news is, is I don't even think uh, Joe Biden is really too aware of things, and he's just being told, "Sign this, whatever. This is what we're doing." Um, you know, it's a shame. In a way, when someone gets old, they start to lose their memory and faculties and that, and I just don't think he's with it. Um, Bobby Kennedy, on the other hand, Bobby Kennedy Jr., has uh, said that he will reopen things. He'll look into this. He'll look into that. I mean, he he's really somebody that people should be, be putting him on our shoulders and parading him around saying, here's somebody that will do something. I mean, the fact that 60 years later, Biden has to have this embarrassment of, you know, we, we can't we can't show the oh, it's because of COVID. They're not ready. They got caught, you know, 25 years is not long enough. I mean, the joke is that the CIA did it. The CIA, last word letter is agency, you know, A for agency. So who are they working for? The Department of Defense, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, or the big money that runs America? If you watch the intro to um, Executive Action... It's a great collage of to, to set up what, what's you know really behind this. But um, yeah, I don't. I you know, I'll bet you Biden doesn't know much of, of anything, and it's uh, you know, uh, I'm just trying to be polite about him, you know, because Trump love him or hate him, and uh, you know sometimes it's a little of both. That I just hated him as a as a shyster. Uh, you know, realtor or whatever, bankruptcy king, you know, I'm starting to have a little empathy for him when I hear day after day now these revelations of, of how the FBI, how everybody, how, uh, you know, the Twitter files have got, these Pentagon files I have to go through more that are released that they just say, we don't want that guy in there and we're going to lie and cover up or doing everything to kick that guy out, you know, and... um if you just want to avoid that, <laughs> let's vote Bobby Kennedy Jr. in. Oh boy, uh, it's 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 not pretty. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, 
Well, hey, listen, um, I, uh, our project that I talked to you about is moving quite al uh, along, you know, it's moving along quite well. And um, we'll uh, definitely uh, want to be on your show. Okay, good. Yeah, good. You know, like I, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't, what, what is it? What is it? No, just well, look, when you're ready, tell me. And yep. I'm glad to help promote anyone doing good work and agree or disagree. You know, I mean, um, I think um, the main thing that maybe people in the research community would say, uh, is there is there Lee Oswald in impersonators? I mean, if he's a patsy, and then why would you know people be buying trucks in his name when he's in Russia, or you know how you know um, was was he at a, a rifle range? You know, was he had a, a car dealership? You know, like so it looks like there's um, somebody that was supposed to be in the balcony, and then somebody arrested, and then somebody goes out the back door of the of the theater there. You know, so. Um, then you get into the further down the road, the, the idea of, of John Armstrong, that there is a Harvey and a Lee, and it goes back further, you know. So um, it's all of interest. And Hey, I'm looking forward to, to your uh, John Armstrong um, interviews. Uh, any, any dates on that? I mean, it, it sounds like it was fascinating. Well... Um, to tell you the course, truth, I, it's just long and it's a lot of work. And, oh yeah. um, you know, I think uh, it's just hours and hours. Like, I think if you were just to read the article that he wrote, was was four, four hours, you know, four and a half hours. And, of course, uh, recording it took, a, took about six hours. So I've got a cut little pauses out, corrections of somebody, the phone rings or something, you know. So I'm just going through. And then I've been lining up with the, getting a little bit of help from a few researchers, just, um, you know, the, and try to make a video out of it and showing the maps and the route and the bus and this and that and the other thing. And every time I go to, to look for, for instance, a photo of this or a photo of that or, you know, what exactly is this route? It takes hours. It takes hours, and uh, I'm not even finished the first hour. So, <laughs> well, that's uh, that's an amazing service that uh, you and John uh, will have done there. Yeah. Well. <laughs> um. Anyway, by the sounds of it, anyway. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Good. Good. Okay. Well, I'm going to send you the song right now that I wrote. I think back in 2002. Which was uh, Great. I just, I just had the, uh, the you see Fletcher Prouty had told me I said why don't does anybody talk and he goes it's a trait of the true professionals that they don't talk that they you know you you don't get these talks I mean even if you watch a documentary uh, on Robert McNamara and that and then he kind of has an honest moment and the camera zooms in on him he goes you know I know things you know and he's saying I know things that I can't tell you and I don't talk about right. Because mm -hmm. I have kids and grandkids and whatever. And, and so uh, it's like that with uh, the people that you're going to find out about, like the Alan Dulles and the Lansdale and the other people who, who did this or that for this operation. They just didn't talk. Yeah, yeah amazing. But anyway, uh, the yeah. idea, I thought, I thought, geez, 
I, I, I can see Lansdale walking somewhere, going up to an edge of the cliff and looking around in the canyon and, and then all of a sudden yelling out, hey, I did it, you know, <laughs> you know, this is how I did it, right? And then uh, just quietly going back and never saying another word kind of thing, right? So, um, yeah. And then, of course, with that, I thought, well, 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 well maybe in Washington, D.C., there would be some kind of awards dinner. They would hand out, you know, trophies. And I said, what would that sound like, right? So, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, so just leave it alone. It's just a song. But um, Wait, I'm looking forward to listening. Yeah, okay. Just give me five minutes. All right, thank you, Paul. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to bring up that we didn't get to? No, that's uh, fine. Uh, again, the uh, project that we're working on, I will. Um, we're hoping to launch in uh, the fall. Right. Uh, hopefully it's by the sixtieth anniversary. Right. Sixtieth anniversary, and uh, I'm working. Uh, soon, we'll be able to. Uh, you know, I'll provide you with a private link uh, to to what we're doing, eventually. Uh, but well, we'll, I can wait until it's ready. When you're ready to talk yeah. about it and everything, then fine. Yeah. No, because I know what it's it, like. I mean, uh, Jeff Carter's working on some uh, documentary for Fletcher Prouty. I'm working on this, and we're doing weekly shows. And you know, look, if we have something, you know, we'd be happy to show people. It's just uh, something's not quite ready. It's not ready, and um, I've been doing this so long that I can <laughs> I can wait. You know, so you tell me when you're ready. I'm happy to help promote anything you're working on. Thanks, Len. All right. And in the meantime, um, like I still haven't released the um, Paul Abbott Excel spreadsheet yet because he just said he's not quite ready. And as soon as he's ready, we'll help publicize that and get other people to look into this and um, oh, yeah. and the garrison files and go through that as well. And maybe we'll have more people like you that, that have got time to dig into this and uh, say, hey, here, I've put these two and two together and look at this. I find the garrison files are way more interesting to read than these uh, rest uh, these uh, releases because uh, he's not pulling punches and he's not exaggerating. You know, he, these files, you have, to, you know, he doesn't have any redactions in them. He, he's putting the information the raw information he has, and it's way more interesting to read than, uh, I, I'm, I'm not trying to discourage people from reading these releases, they should be, but it's much more of a jigsaw puzzle to go through these releases. And when uh, Paul Abbott, uh, uh, you know, let me put it to you this way, uh, the releases we're looking at are from people who are trying to keep secrets secret the releases you read when garrison when you read garrison is from someone who's looking for the truth and looking for transparency doesn't mean he's right on everything but uh no but he's got an angle and he's investigating it and you can see yeah. how maybe with what we know 50 to 60 years later uh just how right he was you know oh keep going jim you're onto something there if you only knew how close you were you know yeah, that's what I kind of get when I read some of them. Yeah. Okay. Well, hey, listen. Thanks for having me on again, and um, I, I uh, love listening to your show. I love also listening to the questions 
you know, of the 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 audience and when Jim's on and answers them, it's uh, we learn a lot from your audience too, right? Because your audience asks very very good questions and uh, and you, thank God you've got someone like Jim who has time to 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 uh, go through the stuff and he's well documented so uh, looking forward to listening to your show and keep up the good work uh, and uh, you know I really feel that if you if you look at what Black Op Radio has done in terms of helping people understand and making it relatable because these files when you read them they're not relatable you know they're if I if I see QK enchant you know who the heck uh, knows what that means or, or, or but you make it I think very accessible to to listeners and uh, even people who may not have a ton of experience in the case so uh, thank you for everything you're doing all right thank you Paul okay Take we'll care. talk to you soon all right good night good night you're listening to black op radio Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. In this segment, we are speaking to uh, author, researcher Ray McGinnis, who has written uh, quite a few articles on things that I have an interest in. And we had him on a little while ago talking about the trucker protest that uh, there was some um, uh, conferences, seminars and inquiries going on in our nation's capital of Canada, Ottawa, which Ray went to visit. And I was so intrigued, someone actually went there. So first of all, welcome, Ray. Good to talk to you again. Great to be with you, Len. Pleasure. Thank you so much for taking time to speak to us today, uh, listeners. So maybe we should just do a quick recap of your time you spent in Ottawa because certain things have come out about the government telling truth or a government lying. And that's what I'm interested in. And you're one of the few people that actually reads the transcripts or will attend uh, the hearings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, very interesting, and uh, I think that I mean, for me, the, the you know the the roads from from Vancouver to get on a plane and go to Ottawa and bother was because I I mean I I have lots of friends that you know rely on the mainstream media. You know, I mean, I've I've been you know someone who's donated to friends of the CBC in the past, and so I you know have been part of very much a liberal liberal left cohort for for decades you know my grandfather you know was a farmer in alberta and voted for tommy douglas and and so you know i've got (laughs) all of that background and so uh i only know one truck driver in my life who lives in oregon portland oregon and wasn't involved in the protests here so uh so i'm kind of the accidental uh person looking into this uh but it was simply the uh uh, you know, hearing from friends who were who were watching uh, aghast and horrified and agitated the nightly news on Global or CTV or the CBC or reading the the Globe and Mail or the Toronto Star, you know, whatever the paper was, and and all you know, universally everything was being described about these, you know, well, uh, you know, the protesters were described as hillbillies, insurrectionists, mercenaries. Um, and, and worse, and, you know, uh, they're all Donald Trump supporters or they're all, you know, anyway, it was uh, it was quite a well, lot. You know, it seems like when they're unable to make their point, then the, the word Nazi crops up, right? Misogynist, white power, you know, that's what they fall back on. 
And, yeah, and, and it's really, I mean, you know, I mean, of course, you know, I mean, I'm I'm somebody who, who would be horrified if I, you know, uh, I mean, I've I've gone seen many movies and documentaries about the KKK and so on and horrified at, you know, at, at, at bona fide racist groups and so on. Uh, so but I, you know, just because somebody calls someone a name doesn't mean that I accept immediately uh, that that allegation. And and I was really curious as somebody, you know, undergraduate in political science and history and English literature and religious studies at the University of Toronto, I thought, well, you know, here we've got this protest going across the country. If this is really a danger, I mean, think about it. I mean, if I go to TripAdvisor and I just because I maybe want to see, you know, maybe, you know, what was that hotel that I went with my parents and brother with, you know, back, back decades ago when I was, you know, a, a child and we went to this particular uh, hotel in, in, the, in the coast of Maine and in, in, in New England. And I'll look it up and see, oh, that hotel is still there. Well, immediately for the next five days, I'll get little pop-ups from TripAdvisor and emails in my inbox letting me know that that hotel in, in, in the state of Maine is available for me to make a booking. Well, in the same way, uh, you know, I mean, Tamara Litch, who was one of the, the visible uh, people identified with the the protests, I mean, all of the all of the people who were involved in any kind of leadership at all with the Freedom Convoy were immediately being surveilled by the RCMP and CSIS and so on. And so if the government really, if the army had thought that, that the people driving trucks from uh, the East Coast and the West Coast really were going to overthrow the government, you know, I would expect that our, our uh, the generals in the Canadian Armed Forces would set up a a roadblock in the Trans-Canada Highway somewhere, you know, or near Banff or, or the Alberta-Saskatchewan border, someplace to, 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 to stop it in its tracks and not wait helplessly for, for uh, you know, for the, the, the government to fall apart, uh, if that was what they thought was happening. Um, but, you know, it, it, it just becomes, uh, you know, the, the disconnect between what was being reported in the mainstream media and then you have people like Rupa Subramania, uh, uh, intrepid uh, Indo-Canadian female reporter, uh, lives downtown in Ottawa, going into the crowds every day, all throughout the protest. Um, and as a woman of color, not a single racist, not a single white supremacist, not a single misogynist did she encounter. Uh, you know, thousands of children on, on you know, in, you know, in strollers or playing with with large Lego or in bouncy castles or people playing road hockey, doing the Macarena, doing the hokey pokey, dancing. I mean, I mean, and, and you know, all kinds of people of all kinds of, of you know, racial, racial backgrounds. And so that's a, that's a unknown color. And so, so it's just, uh, just all of this uh, is going on. And, and, um, and, and so I just, I would think, well, you know, there's, yeah, the, 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 you know, people saying that they're all Nazis. Um, well, we now know about that is that Rodney Palmer, a former journalist with the CTV, the CBC and the Globe and Mail throughout his career, uh, looked at all of the uh, information about about the, you know, the Nazi flag 
you know, and, you know, it, it, it seems that there were people very closely connected to, uh, to the government, uh, to the CBC and CTV that were, uh, that were all involved in, in that, uh, almost like a photo op. Uh, Rodney Palmer says, that, you know, why is the flag still? Why is it a still shot? He said, you know, the only reason you ever have a, a still shot in a, in a news story is if, you know, you've got a reporter in, in Syria and they're in a war zone and it's unsafe for them to have like, you know, a photo, you know, a, you know, live reporting of, of, of them moving around in, in, the, in the other country. Uh, so he was really curious about that. And then the, uh, you know, the, the flag was on the, on the west side of the uh, Chateau Laurier Hotel. Uh, the only way that the camera angle of the photo that was on display immediately popping up on, on CTV and a few other, other sites was for a person to take a photo from way down below in an area where there were no footprints in the snow, lots of snow on that day. And so it would have been ha somebody would have had to have taken the photo from behind that area in a in a secure area. So who who gets to take that kind of a photo? Um, the person who who took the photo of the uh, of the Confederate uh, flag bearer happened to be somebody who was connected to uh, I think it was Paul Martin's former. You know, anyway, one of the one of the people taking the photo was was connected to uh, to Justin Trudeau. The other person was connected as a as a former photographer of Paul Martin, former liberal leader, so prime minister. So it, it's it, you know, uh, it, it seems that, uh, you know, it also makes no sense at all to try and suggest that, that, that the people who are protesting in Ottawa about the vaccine mandates and just saying, why is it that truck drivers uh, coming into Canada, Canadian truck drivers going to the States and then coming back into Canada are required to have a vaccine mandate um, when this is not the case anywhere else in the world. Uh, I want to mention one thing like, you know, people would say, oh, well, uh, the Biden administration required um, uh, truck drivers to also be vaccinated. Well, actually, only people who were in, in, um, in employed in um in a company that had a hundred or more employees, and the vast majority of Canadian truck drivers are, are single operators who drive by themselves. Uh, there was also uh, the, the much looser restriction uh, on the U.S.-Mexican border, again for only truck drivers that would be in in companies of a hundred or more trucks. And Mexico had no restrictions at all; just come on in, which was the case as it was all the way around the world because other countries all around the world said, we're concerned about our economic viability and uh, supply chains and, and a good economy, so we're not gonna require this. So you, so you have the, uh, you know, there are truck drivers and truck, truck associations in Canada, they're saying, how come in this country alone, uh, you're requiring vaccination for truck drivers who drive by themselves, who, who and, and when the, uh, when the uh, health minister Duclos and uh, public health agencies, uh, Dr. Theresa Tam, go to testify before the Health Committee of Parliament in January of 2022, and they're asked about what is the uh, the data statistics about your concerns about truck drivers, uh, you know, spreading COVID, they had no data, nothing to support it at all. So, um, so Canadian truck drivers might say, well, maybe I should. 
I should live in Portugal or or or, or Vietnam or uh, you know South Africa or some other place where I can drive unencumbered across border after border just carrying my load of uh, of goods. I don't think people understand how much of an outlier Canada was on this kind of line in the sand. It's just. Uh, it's just a it's just a scandal. Well, then the scandal to me was that once they had an opposition to this and they saw how it was growing, they tried to shut down people donating money. The GoFundMe page was shut down. And then if you donated money vindictively, they went and they froze your bank account. That's a whole other area, right? You know, I mean, what the hell's going on with that? Well, I mean, you know, in the commission, uh, I mean, all of the people who testified before the commission, who include cabinet ministers senior government officials, a couple of, uh, of Ottawa residents, uh, many police, Ottawa city, city staff and members of the city council, and uh, some protesters primarily, and a few people from, uh, from Windsor and Coots, uh, um, Alberta, are, are, are testifying. And there's all of the witnesses have an interview, an interview summary, uh, which happens before they testify. So although this didn't really come out during Christa Freeland, the deputy prime minister's testimony under oath, in her uh, interview summary, in her interview with the uh, commission staff before her testimony, uh, she cited as one of the reasons why they had to you know, freeze bank accounts and, and crack down on the protest and end it was because she was concerned about the optics that uh, Canada would look weak if Russia were to invade Ukraine. And so in order to send a message to Putin, um, we're going to show him that we can be tough on our own citizens. And we're going to we're going to let the other NATO countries know that we can also be, you know, we, we, we can be tough here. You know, but <laughs> I, I really don't think that 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 the prime minister, you know, that, that Putin or any of the other NATO leaders, I mean, I mean, how, how does uh, um, cracking down on, on right to free speech and the right to assemble uh, send a message that, that makes people shake in their boots, aside from the people who are being beaten up in Ottawa? Well, I don't agree with Canada's uh, stance with the Ukraine, but uh, Victoria Freeland, I mean, it's just amazing the kind of stuff that's going on that people don't know about. And I just don't trust global news or the CBC anymore at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to like. I'll just read. Like, there was a there was a a, a man who's a physicist, who lives. Uh, his name is David Mayberry, and he he's a resident of Kent Street, right in downtown Ottawa. You know, five minutes. You know, you know, just right down. You know, near Wellington Street, in the heart of of, of the protest. And he posted on the third of February. Uh, I didn't see it for for until it was all over the protest. But anyway, this is what he. He posted after spending many hours walking around. Um, he says, I live in downtown Ottawa, right in the middle of the trucker convoy protest. They are literally camped out below my bedroom window. I have read a lot about what my new neighbors are supposedly like, mostly from reporters and columnists who write from distant vantage points somewhere in the media heartland of Canada. Apparently, the people who inhabit the patch of asphalt, asphalt next to my bedroom are white supremacists, racists, hate mongers, pseudo-Trumpian grifters, and even QAnon nutter style nutters. 
At night, I see small groups huddled in quiet conversations. There is no honking at night. Um, this is the 3rd of February, he's writing, uh, after the truck drivers mostly arrived on the 29th of January. What I have, haven't noticed are reporters from any of Canada's news agencies walking amongst the trucks to find out who these people are. So last night, being February 2nd, I just, uh, 2022, I decided to just do that and introduce myself to my new neighbors. I spotted a heavy-duty pickup, a young man in his mid-twenties rolled down the window. His girlfriend was reclined against the passenger side door. I asked how they felt, and I told them I lived right across the street. Immediate surprise washed over the young man's face. He said, you must hate us, but no one honks past 6 p.m. That's true, I said. As someone who lives right on top of the convoy, there is no, no noise at night, I said. No, I don't hate anyone, but I wanted to find out about you. They said they didn't want a country that forced people to get medical treatments such as vaccines. There was no hint of conspiracy theories, no hint of racist over overtones or hateful demagoguery. In a stretch fan, I could see the shadow of a man leaning out from the back as he placed a small charcoal barbecue on the sidewalk next to his vehicle. He introduced himself and told me he was one from one of the reservations on Manitoulin Island. Here I was in conversation with an indigenous man who was fiercely proud to be part of the convoy. He showed me his medicine wheel and pointed to its colors, red, black, white, and yellow. He said, there is a message of healing in there for all the human races that we can come together because we are all human. As I made my way back home, after talking to dozens of truckers, I realized I've met someone from every province except Prince Edward Island. They all have a deep love for this country. They are the people that Canada relies on to build its infrastructure, deliver its goods, and fill the ranks of its military in times of war. The overwhelming concern they have is that the vaccine mandates are creating an untouchable class of Canadians. They see their government willing to push a class of people outside the boundaries of society, deny them a livelihood, and deny them full membership in the most welcoming country in the world. And they said enough. Last night I learned my new neighbors are not a monstrous, faceless, occupying mob. They are our moral conscious, reminding us we are not a country that makes an unclassable touch, an untouchable class out of our own citizens. And, and so, you know, that's the kind of thing that I, you know, that I'd be reading, which is just such a disconnect from, from how the media were describing people. And when I went to, uh, uh, you know, went to Ottawa in mid, mid November last, you know, last year and sat through a week of, of the testimonies, uh, you know, there'd be people who'd be there. There's one person who's, uh, I heard one young man, maybe in his late 20s, early 30s, Afro-Canadian man, and he uh, is involved with a fitness club, you know, on staff. Maybe he's a manager. I'm not sure. But but he uh, he has a mother, um, probably from, from probably she came from, from one of the Caribbean countries to Canada. And she religiously, he says, religiously watches um, uh, the CTV, I think. And so he's down there with his fitness club uh, near the protest. She's hearing about how, you know, this racist white supremacist mob is occupying Parliament Hill. Uh, 
And so she's, as a mother of, of her Africa, Afro-Canadian son, is concerned. And he's saying, you know, I've been in the crowd, mom, it's not a problem. So he convinces her to come down, says, you know, if you feel the least bit um, uncomfortable, we'll leave immediately. So they go down um, and spend quite a bit of time there. And she meets all kinds of people. They like her hat and compliment her on her coat and offer her samosas and other things. And after it's all through, um, she, she says to him, you know, she doesn't understand what, what, the, what the news is saying at night because, you know, I don't understand that these people are so friendly. And so there's just this, you know, this, this disconnect between the, 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 you know, how Canadians, when they, we turn on the TV at night and we treat the nightly news or the daily broadcasts of the hourly news on the radio as if it's the undisputable truth. I mean, maybe there's a little bit of wiggle room, but it's basically regarded like the weather, like the weather people know what the weather is going to be. And, 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 you know, maybe there's a 10% chance of precipitation, but it'd be a sunny day, you know, so, so we might think that they're not, you know, they may be a little off by a few degrees, but clearly, you know, in the main, what we're, what we're digesting uh, on the, on the news is, is, uh, is trustworthy and solid and certainly not, not uh, sending us in any direction where we would be uh, uninformed or, or mis, mis, misinformed. And yet uh, there's this huge disconnect with what happened. Uh, you know, there were, there were numbers of uh, indigenous people who were at the protests, uh, daily drumming, uh, you know, and, uh, and asked uh, one, one uh, indigenous person who, who was there, I said, you know, like, you know I, I know people who, who believe that all the people who were protesting were white supremacists. And, you know, she had to say that, well, you know, uh, it, it's really uh, frustrating to hear, hear self-described liberals and progressives insist that all the people who were protesting in Ottawa were white men. And it's like, you know, for an indigenous woman, uh, you feel like you've been disappeared again. Like, you know, like, you know, ha you know that the media is happy if First Nations people show up at a protest that the media is, is supportive of, but if First Nations people show up at a protest that the media and the government of Canada aren't happy with, suddenly those people disappear. You know, like even Tamara Leach uh, in, her, you know, in her book, Hold the Line, um, talks about how, uh, you know, she's, uh, she has a Métis background, and yet the, the, the news media has gone out of its way to try and act as though she's really not. <laughs> She's really not Métis, so um, so it's very interesting how how uh, how the media ha has wanted to tell a story that all the people who were there were angry white men, uh, no women, no people of color, so on. Children, yes, but even children who uh, you know by the thousands, from what I can tell, um, uh, many you know, I mean, up to eighteen thousand people a day on the weekends. And you might have some thousands of children walking with their parents or in strollers or being piggybacked. And, uh, and, and for the government, uh, you know, people clerk in the Privy Council, Janice Charest, uh, and uh, a deputy uh, clerk of the Privy Council, Natalie Druan, who I heard testify in mid-November, describing the children as if, uh, you know, talk about how they're being used as human shields. I mean, 
this is not the Syrian civil war. What were the children doing? They were eating hot dogs. They were eating samosas. They were sitting in, in the trucks, um, you know, trying to keep warm, having a bowl of chicken noodle soup. They were playing on bouncy castles, um, uh, dancing in the streets, uh, playing road hockey. I, I, I honestly think that if, if the government, if, if, if a reporter from a mainstream news um, outfit had seen a child eating a stick of red licorice, they would have found some way to make that frightening too. Red China licorice? Yeah. I mean, you, if, and, and this is, this is what happened. Like, I mean, it was, I, I mean, I, you know, I have to give, you know, okay. I, I went to the, the, to hear what I would hear, whatever I was going to hear, interested to know what, what maybe, maybe there's going to be some, um, government official or uh, deputy minister the week that I was there or the RCMP uh, commissioner, Brenda Lucky, uh, maybe someone's going to say something that's going to uh, uh, shift, uh, you know, the way I understand things. And yet I'm listening to, you know, I mean, uh, the, uh, the, the person who was the president of Canada Border Services at the time of the protest, John Osowski, uh, said that you know they you know they they kept letting uh, American uh, American citizens uh, walk across the the border to join the protests if they wanted to because uh, the border services uh, regarded the protests as legal and that there was nothing uh, nothing uh, you know violent being done. Uh, Listen to uh, numbers of different uh, police. Uh, Pat Morris with the um, uh, the Ontario Provincial Police. He's like the head of the, basically intelligence for the, for the OPP, and he was quote shocked at the lack of criminality. Uh, you know, I mean, we've got uh, uh, you know one after the, the the next police officers talking about uh, uh, you know how you know, everything on the morning of the 14th of February is uh, friendly. Um, you know, uh, the the, uh, the streets of Ottawa and downtown Ottawa were strewn with red roses, which were being give, given to the police by the protesters. Um, and, the, and the protesters were, um, had been in negotiations with the police, uh, well, uh, to, to make sure the emergency lanes were clear, which they were. And, uh, and this is clear from lots of text messages and documents presented at the commission. It's also clear from testimony of numbers of Ottawa uh, um, senior staff, uh, City of Ottawa senior staff, that there was a plan in place uh, to remove 75% of all of the protest vehicles out of Ottawa by the end of the 16th of February, which which is two days after the Prime Minister invoked the Emergencies Act. And we know that 102, 104 vehicles, uh, protest vehicles, had already moved and, and left, left the vicinity because the uh, city staff were taking photos of the license plates of each of the, of the protest vehicles that were leaving and vacating their spaces. And so, uh, you know, people have talked about needing uh, towing trucks. Well, if the vehicle that you were planning to tow has already left the vicinity, you don't need to tow it. I, I, I mean, 
the the national security uh, advisor of the prime minister, Jody Thomas, uh, they walked her through uh, under cross-examination the four triggers for invoking uh, the Emergencies Act. Uh, The first one is, uh, I think, sabotage and espionage, um, foreign interference, no, no, no. Um, Was there any plot to overthrow the government? No. I mean, uh, when the the Canadian Security and Intelligence Services uh, Director David Vigneault uh, was speaking, he said, no, no plot to overthrow the government. you know, didn't even look at it. It was it was so ridiculous, not even a possibility. Um, no violence. When when Jody Thomas was asked as the national security advisor of the prime minister, uh, less than a month into her appointment, um, from mid January of 2022, um, about act uh, serious violence, she swapped out the word serious for continual. And then when she was pressed on, well, what does she mean by a continual? She says, well, there was honking of horns. Well, even by the accounts of the several uh, Ottawa residents who testified at the commission, it was agreed that uh, once uh, Ontario Justice Hugh McLean had uh, uh, passed his, uh, his judgment that the, that the horn honking had to stop on the 7th of uh, February that the horn honking did stop. I mean, you know, 99%. You know, was there some rogue truck driver somewhere at some point during the day that honked their horn? Uh, Yes, and if they did, then the road captains for the block or the block captains uh, for that area would go over and tell that truck driver, buddy, you have to stop, you know, you can't honk your horn, and if you do, we're going to cut the cable to your air horn, and that put a stop to it. Uh, and when the when the uh, Justice McLean renewed the uh, the you know the you have a right to continue peacefully protesting on the 16th of February, two days after the Emergencies Act was declared, it was in consideration that the protesters had abided by the horn honking injunction. So there's the horn honking, and then the then the Jody Thomas says, in addition to this, the continual violence of horn honking, she says, well there was pollution. A little bit of, you know, vehicles running, you know, with diesel fumes. Now, put this into perspective. We have in this country at times over 100 different First Nations reserves from coast to coast who in some places have been without fresh and clean, fresh water to drink and clean water to bathe in for over 25 years. But there doesn't seem to be an emergency to deal with that pollution. So... Uh, so I don't know. I mean, and, and then and then Jody Thomas talks about children, the danger of having children around. Again, it's it's catastrophizing. I mean, it, it, I mean, it, it may be that it may be that we are unfortunate enough to have a government with the cabinet ministers and and all of the senior government officials who have groupthink crystallized around a certain propensity to catastrophize uh, and almost paranoia, but, but, you know, when you look at it, you've got, um, you have no, you know, you, you have no, um, uh, no uh, arrests because of physical violence. I mean, the, the, the big, the big story in terms of who was arrested after the, uh, the protests were over, 
is Tamara Litch, you know, who was a visible spokesperson for the for the the convoy, and she's up on a mischief charge. Now she's been in jail at, at times uh, up up to forty five days or forty nine days in total, uh, but she still hasn't hasn't seen her day in court yet. Um, but that's mischief. Like I mean, if if there was somebody who was in Ottawa protesting who had actually punched somebody or attempted to rape or raped somebody or had smashed a window of a business or a, or a residence. Uh, that person would be on the on the cover of Time magazine in McLean's, but they're not because that didn't even happen. So so there is uh, you know the, the Emergencies Act, which we learned during the the, the commission uh, when the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau testified. It, it, we were reminded because I never I never knew about this when when it was reported in the news that. Uh, once the pandemic began in in Canada, uh, really after the 11th of March of 2020, um, within two weeks, you have the prime minister um, floating the trial balloon and thinking, maybe I need to declare the Emergencies Act to deal with, you know, like, oh, my God, we have a pandemic. I mean, this is at the time when the guidance from pub, from Public Health Agency of Canada was don't wear a mask because uh, they don't help. Um, and, uh, you know, that, I mean, people were being encouraged to, to, to do the, you know, restrictive lockdowns and so on, and people were living with that. Uh, you know, I mean, the first two weeks, certainly, you know, people were saying, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll do this, and that's what was happening. And so, I mean, later on, there were people that didn't want them to last for, for months on end. And there were, you know, other other issues. But well, I, I think, you know, the arm's length, the whole trucker protest was they wanted to meet with somebody. They wanted the prime minister to come down there and say, listen, there has to be an end a goal here. At some point, you're going to end the mandates and meet with us and discuss that. And that's what didn't happen. That's what didn't happen. They didn't even need the prime minister to come. They, like any, you know, anybody. I mean, you have the deputy minister, Rob Stewart. Uh, I think he's connected to Marco Mendocino, the public safety minister, who was in, in negotiations uh, with, uh, you know, uh, uh, and uh, was bringing a proposal uh, to, to cabinet uh, uh, that, uh, that there would be, uh, you know, face-to-face -face discussions. Uh, with uh, some of the protest leaders, uh, you know, who would be assigned to do that would, would be, you know, up to the prime minister, I suppose, to deputize whoever, or, you know, uh, but, uh, but this is what's been done, you know, uh, in, in almost, you know, forever. I mean, you know, in 1935, there was uh, the Great Depression. You have these protesters going from Regina on to, on to Ottawa it was contentious. Eight people went in to meet with uh, uh, Prime Minister R.B. Bennett. Uh, they didn't have a, a, a lot of, uh, uh, of success in having a discussion or negotiations, but nonetheless, he met with them. Uh, we had protests uh, from mostly First Nations people from uh, early January 2020 until around the 20th of March 2020. Uh, highway was closed in Ontario. Uh, rail service, uh, freight rail, and uh, 
and passenger rail were both closed for over a month across the nation. Uh, and, you know, there were arsons to, to different uh, uh, and, and damage to different rail uh, junctions. Uh, but nonetheless, throughout all of that time, the prime minister said, well, we need to negotiate with pe these people and we need to understand them. And, and so um, it seemed that the government uh, was almost making a political gamble that they could uh, put a firewall and say, and if they can depict the protesters as uh, disreputable, as unreasonable and so on, then, then that would somehow mean that, that they were justified in not having discussions. And yet there were successful negotiations with the city of, of Ottawa to begin to remove 75% of all the protest vehicles. There were also successful ongoing, uh, you know, daily, hourly, and more often texting and phone calls between protest leaders and numbers of, of Ottawa city police and OPP and RCMP to, uh, to make sure that things were, you know, anything that was a problem somewhere uh, was was dealt with. So, uh, so on the one hand, you have the track record of successful protester police interaction and successful protester and city of Ottawa interaction, and yet a government of Canada that says it's impossible to deal with these people. Well, where does that leave us today? Can we have a government that uh, could freeze bank accounts? could call people who donate to a cause they don't want. I think the CBC came under fire from uh, after an investigation said you were really coloring the news. You were uh, <laughs> a source of disinformation, actually, really. Yeah, the CBC uh, has, has now, um, uh, well, the, the, the ombudsman back in October uh, said that regarding the CBC's reports that were it not for uh, Russian agents in Canada uh, suggesting or whispering in the ears of truck drivers, hey, you guys, wouldn't it be great if you just drove to Ottawa from, uh, from, uh, from the Pacific coast and, 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 and blew your horns? Uh, they would never have thought of doing it. Uh, and and, and, and so, uh, so the ombudsman said in, in his report, <laughs> public chastisement of the, of the public broadcaster, that uh, the CBC uh, reporters uh, and and higher-ups need to remember the, uh, the CBC is influential on the general public and that they have a responsibility when they report a story that it has to be based on some kind of evidence. And in this case, there was none at all. It was just made up. Uh, same with the story that the... Uh, that uh, you know, half of the protesters, or or half of the money, or 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 much more than that, uh, came from uh, from Trump supporters in Ottawa, uh, or I mean, not Ottawa, I mean in the states, um, and and so on. Um, it, there were you know there were numbers of times that the CBC just just went right out and just flat out lied, and you know they've had a number of these of these uh, you know retractions or but. The damage that, that is done, because there are a lot of people who will walk around still believing that, uh, you know, I, I even know some people in Canada who, who believe that, uh, the, that Russia was somehow involved in, in colluding with the truck drivers to protest in Ottawa. And, and in, the, in, the, in the past, I mean, you know, back in, in America, we had a story that Dick Cheney, vice president, and Condoleezza Rice, 
national security uh, advisor, all talking about how uh, Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. If we don't go in there, you know, we're going to have a mushroom cloud. Well, uh, they kept hammering away at that. And the New York Times and Judith Miller and a whole bunch of other people were happy to to report the story without any any scrutiny at all. I mean, eventually it turned out that no, there were no weapons of mass destruction, as as the uh, as all the UN uh, observers uh, could have told them, Scott Ritter and others. But uh, but I think I remember reading uh, you know polls in uh, like even like 2014, where still 42% of Americans believed that the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq existed and that they were found. And so you can have a headline story and run with it for weeks or months and influence a lot of people and convince them that something that's not true is true. And then eight months or 14 months later, you can have a small retraction posted online somewhere on the, on the news uh, uh, sources site. But most people won't see that. And they won't know it. It's not going to be uh, the the leading news item tonight is that the CBC apologizes for for its uh, misreporting on on Russian influence on on the truck drivers to go to Ottawa. You'll never hear that. And I I think you know, when you ask like where we are now, I mean in the in the aftermath of all of this, we have a report by Justice Paul Rouleau certainly written with, with the great help of, of many staffers because he had between the 9th of, or the 12th of December and the 17th of February, like nine weeks, including, uh, you know, uh, winter holidays to, uh, to produce a 2,100-page uh, you know, report uh, and get it uh, copy-edited and proofread and printed and, and to, the, uh, to the government. Uh, and and it says, well, you know, um, people people may be uh, maybe uh, you know reasonable people could disagree with uh, with his contention that uh, that the government was somehow justified in um, in in the uh, you know in in having its. Uh, it's uh, you know emergencies act being invoked, but 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 he you know he goes ahead and uh, and just you know he just he just says oh well you know uh, I think that they, they should have gone ahead and done it anyway, and and so it's 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 the it's the weakest um, lamest um, kind of uh, of of insistence. It, I mean if you had um, you know, a, a kind of a, um, you know, he says, you know, we do not come to this conclusion easily as we do not consider the factual basis for invoking the Emergencies Act to be overwhelming and acknowledge that there is significant strength to the ar arguments against it. I mean, imagine if we'd had, you know, uh, the report on the Royal Commission on the Status of Women in 1970. Uh, which concluded that two-thirds of, 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 of the people in Canada on welfare were women. And then the uh, Royal Commission on the Status of Women in its report in 1970 had said, 
we do not come to this conclusion easily. We do not consider the factual basis for it to be overwhelming, and we acknowledge that there's significant strength to the arguments against reaching it. I mean, <laughs> I mean, they would have been laughed out of town if that if that really was a, a highly debatable conclusion for them to reach. Um, so it's it's uh, it's really problematic. You have you have uh, a report which goes you know, dances along and says, on the one hand, this, on the other hand, that. Now, I want to say, too, invoking the Emergencies Act is, in according to the legislation, is a last resort. You have a number of other things you can do. I mean, you can, you can declare a curfew. I mean, people in Quebec remember well that they were, you know, there were curfews going on for five months, and you couldn't, you couldn't be outdoors after, I think, 8 p.m. in most places. And and stay in, you know, in, indoors until at least eight or nine in the morning, um, and um, and that those were enforced. You could have had a curfew in downtown Ottawa and said everybody has to leave the downtown, you know, premises in Wellington Street or whatever the the parameters are. You could also declare the riot act, but the police in Ottawa and the police in in, in the province of Ontario uh, at no point felt that there was anything going on at the protests in, in downtown Ottawa that justified declaring it a riot. Unlike the, uh, the Stanley Cup riot we had out here in Vancouver when the Vancouver Canucks lost the Boston Bruins and 15 uh, vehicles were set on fire and 60 businesses were set on fire and 814 uh, you know, uh, criminal charges and so on, you know? I mean, that we, you know, based on what happened just with the Vancouver uh, um, Stanley Cup riot, we could have had the, the Emergencies Act declared based on on the on on how much we're lowering the bar. Uh, so, so, uh, but if after the Riot Act, if you don't declare a riot, I mean, you could still you can still apply the National Defense Act, which is where you call in the army uh, as a step prior to invoking the Emergencies Act, and what. Justice Rouleau says, he says, well, you know, I mean, yes, you could you could call in the army, but he says much has changed since then. I mean, since since the uh, since the uh, National Defense Act was amended in 1988. I mean, nothing has changed. I mean, what hasn't you know, I mean, what hasn't changed since 1988 passage of the Emergencies Act is the Canadian Armed Forces has remained uh, ready continually since 1988 until 2022 to respond to a crisis when asked to intervene. And so, but this kind of uh, waving away, you know, even when it comes to the the freezing of bank accounts, Justice Rouleau says, well, what else could we have done? And uh, and even, even uh, muses that really, you know, maybe, you know, People's properties should have been seized as well, and and it's really ironic how I forget uh, how many dozens of years ago that a prime minister stood up in the House of Commons and apologized to Japanese Canadians uh, for uh, their treatment in World War II and for the seizing of their property, and now we have a new report. Which is which is saying freezing bank accounts uh, going forward. That's just fine. If a government feels like they need to, they can do it. And by the way, maybe it'd be a good idea 
if you also seize their businesses and 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 and, uh, and private properties. And one of the most shocking things about this report is that uh, we had in the Emergencies Act four triggers to at least be like a, a threshold for determining whether or not an emergency exists or not. You know, sabotage, foreign interfer interference and espionage, serious acts of, of actual serious acts of violence, and a plot to overthrow the government that can be measured in some way that's palpable and, and real. Um, now, with the report, Rouleau wants to remove all of those all of those stipulations. So it will be left in the future. Uh, I imagine that this report will go before Parliament at some point uh, under the current government, and they will pass recommendations like this. So there will be no triggers, no named triggers. In the future, it will simply be a matter of the government feeling, with an emphasis on the word feeling, that there an emergency exists in which they can go ahead. Because the language of the word violence is also changed in this report. It used to be that one of the triggers was serious acts of violence. And it was understood in the criminal code that an act of violence is physical violence. But now violence is, is, uh, is extended in the report to also mean psychological violence. So if I feel upset about what's going on, if I'm, if I'm you know, stressed out, uh, uh, feel like I need to call a therapist to, to deal with how I feel about, about the tension in the streets because of a certain protest somewhere, maybe the government can just go ahead and invoke a new emergencies act because people are, are stressed out. Yeah, stressed out. Uh, that, that's just unbelievable, really. I mean, this is this is what you know, like the you know, yeah, Jody kind of, Thomas. In other words, like virtue, virtue signaling. Yeah, I mean, when Jody Thomas, the national security advisor to the prime minister, was testifying, and I, I mean, she's very impressive on the stand. She's quite a presence. I mean, she's a person in charge. I mean, you can see why she'd be maybe hired in that position. But she's, you know, when when she talks about well, we're not trying to change the Emergencies Act, but we think it needs to be modified modified well why because of well because there's social media i mean i remember reading uh i was sent an article by former uh supreme court uh, justice beverly mclaughlin wrote an opinion piece in the globe and mail in february of 2022 and she talked about you know like what is all this stuff about freedom you know freedom to utter death threats against the prime minister so i read that of course i mean I don't support anyone uttering death threats against the prime minister or any any member of parliament or, or any citizen for that matter. Um, and I think that it should be a criminal matter that you investigate. But again, uh, after, you know, I mean, imagine a person sitting down to read the Globe and Mail, reading Beverly McLaughlin's opinion piece and looking at, at her saying it's awful if people are uttering death threats against the prime minister. And yet, when, when all the, the, you know, the dust is cleared, um, settled down, no one at, at, the, at the Freedom Convoy protests was uh, arrested in Ottawa for uttering death threats against the prime minister. So, uh, so again, it's, it's, uh, it's very problematic uh, the gap between 
the high rhetoric of threat and and the almost nothing burger when it comes to you know I mean it'd be I don't I don't like it when there's a car alarm that goes off in the morning early morning or someone's honking their horn much I understand that but the the horn stopped for all intents and purposes by after the seventh and it wasn't even going on uh, in the evening by the third of February so um, and then there, I mean there there I want to mention too the the situation in Coots, um, Alberta, the small town uh, along the Alberta-Montana border. Uh, suddenly, uh, there were uh, was uh, 14 people arrested for various charges, four most seriously for conspiracy to commit uh, murder against uh, the RCMP. And, I mean, first of all, those arrests happened under the existing laws of the land, you know, before the Emergencies Act was invoked, just as the Ambassador Bridge at Detroit-Windsor uh, uh, was already cleared by the night of the 13th of February. Um, the four uh, who are accused of conspiracy to commit murder, uh, who did not uh, fire a weapon, did not... Uh, physically assault anyone at all, uh, have never been granted bail. They are now in jail, I think it's 515 days now. Uh, they may not see a, a, a date, they may not see uh, uh, their day in court until next June or next September 2024. So, um, you know, somehow we were able to have uh, a public inquiry into what happened in Ottawa uh, just uh, half a year later, and yet these four who are, have been arrested and kept in jail, uh, in a re for the most part in, in remand centers where there's very little to do. It's not like a jail where you can, you know, take an education course or, um, you know, <laughs> there's there's not an awful lot more to do besides, you know, uh, draw on some piece of paper or, uh, you know, read the Bible. Um, so uh, I think that uh, the question I have is, is, you know, what what is going on with that, with those charges? Um, it seems very, very unlikely that, the, you know, that the, uh, the weapons that were displayed in the photo that some people may remember, of uh, weapons that were discovered, um, uh, they were all put on the table. Um, it's it's the whole way that those weapons are arranged, and uh, you know it's 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 there's there's problems with uh, with with evidence in terms of the the handling of evidence. Um, so uh, I can't I can't say a lot more about about that i have to be careful what i what i say about it but it but it's there's uh uh you know there should have been um you know fingerprinting taken dna taken um but clearly that the handling of the of the weapons in the short in the short time didn't allow it so it's there's there's some problems anyway just to say that uh uh People, you know, even on the websites uh, in El, you know, in the 
and the uh, law courts in Alberta says everyone has a right to a speedy trial, but this isn't a speedy trial. And, and you know, the, routinely in Canada, if someone is, is charged with even first degree murder, they're out on bail. I mean, they may have to pay $100,000 or more. Um, they may have to have, uh, you know, ankle bracelets and surveillance or whatever else, but they're out on bail. But these four are not. And they have been offered plea deals, but they haven't gone for it. But how Is many there days? Any, any other links that we can find out more about this? I'm gonna I'm gonna be writing about this. Yeah, you can you can go um, you can go. There's a, I'll send you an article. There's a guy called Donald Best, who's a, who's been a, who's a former police officer in Toronto, and he is. Um, uh, also, you know, involved and interested in corruption, and I'll send you the, the an article that he's written because it's uh, it's an interesting it's interesting because I mean there's there's not a lot of information I mean there's there's some information uh, but a lot of it even the defense you know gets uh, is getting um, huge dumps like this happened in the Public Order Emergency Commission where suddenly. You know, the uh, lawyers for the protesters or other other parties are wanting to uh, to cross examine uh, uh, Minister Freeland or Prime Minister Trudeau. And then suddenly the, the government dumps a thousand pages of uh, of information, which uh, which the uh, different uh, different people who want to cross examine are having to quickly glance over and see if there's something in one of those documents or pages that they want to uh add to the the very limited time they have when they're cross-examining uh, somebody um, you know the way that the way that things are being dumped by the prosecution um, uh, you know it, I mean the defense has asked for a uh, you know postponement of the trial because uh, they would find that suddenly the prosecution is dumping a whole bunch of stuff again uh, and uh, you know you don't have the title of what that page is. What does this page have to do with the next page? It's like having to put together a huge, a huge, you know, 500, like 5,000 piece puzzle together, you know? So um, anyway, it's, yeah, but I'll, I'll send you that article because it really is, it's really interesting. And, and I want to say one other thing is that a lot of the, the news coverage that has been reported uh, a lot of you know print uh, print media online. Um, you have a uh, uh, report by CBC or CTV or Global, uh, Calgary Herald, and they'll have all this little information here and there. Uh, some of it comes from press releases from the RCMP, and a lot of it comes from what are called ITOs, the Information to Obtain Warrants which are, you know, pro the, the crown prosecution, crown prosecutors want, want, want these, they're trying to get more information. And what the ITOs really consist of is primarily what the crown, like what their story is, like they've got a little story that they, that they, that they, that they're telling, you know, themselves and, and want to tell the judge. Uh, it's not proof of evidence. It's simply, 
here here's my you know spin really on on what I think happened. Uh, but but so often what's happening is the press will take uh, these uh, releases from you know and uh, the ICOs and just treat it uh, as solemn, solid, uh, indisputable information and present it in a way that that uh, you know that the public, you know, I mean, how many days and months and years uh, does a person need to languish in jail uh, before, uh, well, you know, while their spirits are sagging, perhaps? How, you know, like if you knew that you've been in jail for 17 months and you maybe had another 10 to, to 14 more before you even saw your day in court to defend yourself, you know, how would you feel about that? Would you bow to pressure to, to have a plea deal? Uh, and, and then if you have um, uh, people in the general public, all we have to rely on are the stories that get dribbled out in the Lethbridge Herald or the Calgary papers and the Edmonton papers and across the nation nationally. Um, and if all the stories you're reading uh, paint the people who are, who are accused as monsters, uh, who, who want to uh, overthrow the government. Um, there ends up at some point, after a certain number of years, uh, it's a challenge then for, uh, for a judge to find a jury that's not biased enough against the accused because this kind of, these kinds of impressions are left to people's imagination to make up their own uh, story about what they think happened, and, you know. I mean, and and it's perfectly possible that the, that the that the that the um, the prosecution has some damning damning evidence and uh, and you know throw the book at them. But uh, I just think that we have to be. I don't think that we want Canada to be a country where if people are accused of a serious serious crime that that means that they have no chance of bail and also don't get to ever have a speedy trial. I think that, that concerns me. You know, so many things turn out to be fake, but they, the government says, we have this evidence, you can't see it right now, right? And uh, I'm thinking about the Iraq war and I'm thinking about this whole Russia hoax in America. You know, this whole, oh yeah, the Russians, the Russians, the Ru you find out the whole thing is a fraud. And when I say the whole thing, I mean the whole thing. And uh, we don't have to get into revelations to the Twitter files, but I mean, there's been court cases now that the courts have finally started saying that the government cannot go to these social medias and ask them to delete people's accounts or censor stuff or even uh, promote phony things. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that's happening, but we'll just wait and see if that actually takes place. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, I mean, we, you know, here we are in British Columbia, you and I talking, and and uh, you know, back in 2013, uh, there were new headline stories about a, a plot to uh, to bomb the uh, provincial legislature in Victoria, and uh, the two ne'er do wells who were, you know, on drugs and uh, welfare, uh, uh, eventually uh, got, uh, ex you know, they. They, the case was thrown out, I think, in 2017 or so. 
And apparently up to, I mean, there were, of course, some leads, lead uh, officers. Well, but there was, but it, what it was, it was dismissed, right? Yeah. Because they found out that uh, the whole thing had been a put-up job. Yeah, yeah. These guys yeah. were babysat the whole way through. And then in uh, in some released footage they had of them, they were afraid to go through with the thing. They thought they would be killed if they tried to back out of this crazy deal, right? Of taking yeah. so you, you've got you've got a plot. You I mean you have you have a, an RCMP who is who is getting uh, a proportion of their budget to fight terrorism, domestic or international, and and are really hatching a plot uh, in in Canada in 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 British Columbia to help say see. We we got these people, and now maybe we can get a bigger budget next year because we're doing such a good job stopping the terrorists, even though they would never have been interested in the least in, in doing anything if we hadn't, uh, you know, basically uh, spoon-fed them through the whole the whole exercise. I mean, there's, you know, we're, it's not in Canada alone. You've got uh, uh, this, uh, there was this case back in 2020 with the Michigan uh, governor, Gretchen Whitmer, I think uh, she was, you know, there was this news headline stories about about a plot to kidnap her and everything. And back in April of 2022, the, the whole plot, the whole the whole uh, the whole case for, uh, for you know, it just collapsed, you know, because it was just nothing. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, well, it was worse than that. I think I'll, I'll make up a number. Don't quote me. But there was like 20 individuals in there and they found out that, you know, maybe 15 of them were FBI informants. Yeah. Like it was all FBI informants trying to, we've got to find something. And uh, here, it'd be great if you guys could do something. Here's a little bit of money. Here's this. Here's funding. And uh, please, please hatch some kind of plot. And then, you know, it's it's like a, a create work thing. Yeah. I mean, it's this kind of, of behavior on the uh, on the part of policing and intelligence agencies, which you really hope as a citizen isn't... Uh, isn't much of their occupation, but uh, Trevor Aronson wrote a book called The Terror Factory, all about manufacturing, uh, you know, threats. And uh, I think that's about 10, 12 years ago. But, you know, it's still a good book. He, you know, he talks about at that time, um, there were like over 512, uh, you know, individuals who've been, who've been charged with, you know, uh, you know, domestic terrorism in the United States. So it's like, good, the FBI is doing it, doing a good job. But when when they looked through, you know, all the situations of of the people who were homeless, uh, mentally ill, and and all these people who unemployable, uh, who 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 were who were basically coaxed to to do whatever, you know, go 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 to. Uh, a city hall in Portland and try and do something with a Christmas tree. Uh, I mean, all of these, you know, like, like, you know, 90, 97% of, of, of every, uh, you know, of all of it was, was, was all manufactured by, you know, by the, the coaxing of, you know, let's go and find someone and, 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 you know, lure them or, you know, befriend them and, and, suggest things to them and try, you know, it's just, um, and sometimes the people who are, you know, who, who really don't have many screws, you know, that are not loose, 
um, you know, are, are, are easily persuaded with their own delusions. But but it, it's uh, it's not how, you know, um, it's not how policing and intelligence agencies are expected to behave in a democratic society. You know, when 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 you know when when the shit hits the fan, we want them to respond to it, but not because they've made it happen. Well, those kind of things remind me of the Reichstag fire, where they uh, start some fire, they find some ne'er-do-well guy that they uh, broke out of a hospital, kill him, he's found dead, then they blame it on somebody else, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's like, you know, we we have a, we have a, a some of us have a, a rosy view of, of democracy that, that, that it just rolls along and that there are never people who end up in positions of, uh, of considerable power who want to torque things in a certain direction in order to, uh, to advance their, their own positions or and agendas. And unfortunately, uh, people who are students of history know that, uh, that things happen. <laughs> and, uh, and that just as you say, with the Reichstag fly, fire and, uh, and so it goes. Okay, Ray. Well, you kind of uh, recapped everything again. That's uh, good to hear that you're still on the case and writing. Um, so you're writing a new article. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna write I'm gonna write something about about what's going on with the uh, you know you know once I learned that these uh, four uh, men who were accused of uh, basically conspiring to commit murder of RCMP officers and I think uh, trying to overthrow the government, um, basically, um, I thought, well, you know, they've been in jail now for, you know, at the time, like 500 days, now it's 515. I just think that uh, there needs to be a, a discussion about, you know, do, do we still believe in Canada that people are innocent until proven guilty? Uh, Gee, I didn't I, know we were that fragile that only four group of four people could overthrow the government. Well, yes. And, and you know, with what they had there, I mean, we don't know. I mean, you know, there were reports that it was found in a in, in a, a trailer and then a house that's somewhere else uh, as well. And then the story changed three times. Um, oh, but, don't but, you remember when they said they found these documents in a cave? Uh, you know, of ways to make a nuclear bomb and that, right? Oh, God, in Afghanistan or, or somewhere in Iraq, they found these documents in the cave. Yeah, as if. Yeah, well, yeah. So, you know, you've got, you've got, uh, I mean, there's, there's, there, there, <laughs> there are problems with, uh, with having, uh, you know, as I've said before, we need to have, uh, I think it's it's shocking that we have a situation like this. I mean, I and I, you know, again, I don't know if 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 the people in question are 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 guilty or or innocent, but I think that uh, I don't know what I, I mean. The defense doesn't. There's a lot that the defense probably doesn't know about the full extent of whatever the crown prosecution has against the uh, the accused, but to let them sit in jail. For over a year and a half, you know, with a trial date that's far into the future still, is not the way that justice or the legal system should be running. Uh, you know, I mean, 
you, you either you know you either say more about what you have against these people or you let them out on bail i mean you can you know you can have have them under restrictions but but uh but it's uh i think uh you know we <laughs> i would have hoped that we've learned enough lessons about about you know how east germany <laughs> of the past and other countries have behaved in terms of uh you know um, you know it's like you know find me the man and i'll and i'll <laughs> and I'll, I'll 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 attach a crime to him yeah i'll like, show you the crime yeah. <laughs> yeah so you know we we need to be uh we need to not just shrug uh, uh when uh when people are suddenly uh uh not allowed to have uh their day in court it's not you know because if if we if we decide as citizens in this country and for all those listening in America and beyond that it's okay people can be arrested and charged they may not uh you know face uh, a trial for two and a half three three and a half years you know shrug you know go on with our lives but uh i think very few people um are 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 going to be able to uh, well, I mean, financially and everything. I mean, in addition to uh, to not being able to have a day in court, it also means, you know, a person who's maybe been pay- paying a mortgage on their house and, you know, I mean, anyone who who, no- who now has to stand still and not make any money for, for two years, three years, that's a huge hit as well. Plus their reputation, which is in public, um, uh, you know the court of public opinion, and 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 so often in, in history, uh, I'll just mention the uh, uh, you know the Dreyfus affair back in you know which which captured <laughs> the full attention of of the French citizens from like 1994 until the mid you know until 1906 or so on, and here you have uh, an innocent man who is a, a, a captain, a Jewish French citizen uh, who was. Uh, Pegged for having uh, 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 sold, uh, you know, information to the Prussian government, uh, and the the army uh, general chiefs of staff didn't want to uh, uh, lay the finger against somebody else because they they just they just thought, well, that can't be, <laughs> and so they send this Dreyfus off for I don't know, 15 years or whatever it was to Devil's Island on the on the north coast of South America. And, uh, you know, you know, you get a whole you get a kind of hysteria that goes on with everybody in Paris walking around with uh, with with signs and torches saying kill the traitor Dreyfus. And uh, and they also want to get Emile Zola for challenging the army. Uh, So, you know, hopefully we uh, we've learned some lessons in history. But I I sometimes think, given what's going on in our country today, that we're going to have to relearn them. Okay, well, uh, thanks so much for sharing what you did again today, Ray, and um, look forward to reading your next article and uh, having you on to talk about that. Great. In the meantime, uh, yeah, if you have uh, any articles or links you can send me, we'll post them in the show notes. Fabulous. Thanks so much, Lynn. All right, good. Before we wrap up, is there anything else you wanted to mention? Didn't get to? No, I think I think that's good for today. Good. All right then. Okay. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Okay, goodbye.